This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. Cruising down the river, dancing till your feet got numb. Cool summer breezes blowing through your hair as you stood gazing down the river in anticipation of the thrill of the dizzying rides at the amusement park. Ah, memories of Boblo Island. Just jealous of everybody that's headed out on that Boblo boat. It is the perfect weather, the perfect time to enjoy a few snacks. Oh man, I wish I was joining you with a little cheese and crackers, a little can I wine, a little real medium ice, some Harvey Bristol cream. But let's do this only on Smooth FM. Nothing compared to our family trips My uncle shook hands with the manly grip All this hand-me-down shit I had had an uncanny fit All the gangsters I had in my family had me any bitch My granddaddy mistress caught the business from my granny fist That was back before I was born Pop told stories about it that would last for hours long And as a family we was just so happy when him and mama got along On our way to that black amusement park Wood roller coasters crack sold on plastic scooter cars it is June 4th, 2018, and this is another sleepy and tired edition of Psychology is Dead. I guess I'm still your host, Quentin Moody. What do you mean you guess? You didn't offload, on, you didn't offload this on me. I could have in my absence. I could have told you to record a Psychology is Dead, um, which technically, technically would have been a strings podcast, I guess. I guess. It's funny, I was thinking about this the other day. It's funny that, like, the two primary podcasts that I've been on the last couple of years have been, like, psychology-oriented, uh, <laughs> with Psychology is Dead and Sports Entertainment Shrinks. That is I, I just thought that was a very strange thing that, like, totally wasn't totally wasn't planned at all. Yeah, that is very true. And that person speaking, since they didn't want to wait for the introduction, is Brock Yonke, my usual cohort when i do this dumb fucking show <laughs> yes this dumb fucking sleepy show yes i don't think it's ever been not sleep deprived at some level <laughs> i think it's me this time though i think i'm not sure i'm not sure it's you that's the sleep usually usually it's usually it's me but no this time we've uh we've switched roles um but how you been, man? It's been three months since, well, it's been three months since I've recorded, since I've recorded any audio in general. It's been mm. three months since we've last done a show together. So mm. for a lot of people that have listened to Psychology is Dead, like this isn't a new thing for me to kind of like disappear for a while. So if you were looking for new Psychology is Dead episodes and weren't getting any or wondering where I've been, especially since I haven't been on Twitter, I kind of disappeared mm-hmm. at large. Um, I wasn't in the Slack group chat that we have for a while, quite as often as I used to be. So, if you were, anyone was wondering where I was, I broke up with my girlfriend, I quit my job, I went to the hospital and had the worst night of my life. Mm. I have had panic attacks and anxiety attacks on my sleep for like three weeks. I thought it was dying. Turns out I just had allergies that I never knew I had. So I've been dealing with a lot the last like month. 
So, of course, I can't apologize for my body doing things that I don't want it to do. But I have wanted to record shows, but I always wanted to be in the right mental space whenever I record shows. It's totally. some weird responsibility I think I have to do things. Um, that's not that's not weird at all. <laughs> but this topic that we have today is one that in that aforementioned Slack chat we've had before numerous mm-hmm. times, actually. And what we're doing today is the art of influence. And when it comes to art of influence, I'm not going to be going all time who has the biggest influence we would be here. I think shorter than we expected if we did an all time influence list. But maybe, I don't know. For this specific episode, we're going to be going to the most influential people of the 2010s in professional wrestling. And we didn't like prepare like a mutual list that we were going to go over for this. There's going to be a lot of us going back and forth and talking about names and seeing how we feel about these names being mentioned in the influence category. But Brock, when we first started having these conversations about in regards to the 2010s, who's been the most influential people, you got to account for like impact on the business itself, impact on the style mm-hmm. of professional wrestling that we're seeing impact on like, how guys are able to make livings now in professional wrestling in the 2010s without being in the WWE. There's a lot that you have to account for, I think, in this era of wrestling. So this era of wrestling has seen a whole bunch of booms and power given out to people that didn't have the same power, say, in 2005, 2006. So when we were talking about the influence that certain guys have had on the decade, where were you taking the approach to this topic? Well, first and foremost, I wanted to like define what exactly we mean by influence, as well uh, as well as in another word that we we had been throwing around, um, importance. And I think I think how it came down to me uh, when I was mulling these words over and looking at this list that I prepared, um, what it comes down to me is like these two words signify two different sorts of power. In that, I think influence would refer to like empower to enact artistic or emotional change upon professional wrestling whereas importance is more um is more in the line of like structural change or economic change the business side of things and influence is like usually something that you can track on an individual level like this person influenced this person this person influenced this person this person influenced like this whole slew of people in this promotion whereas importance uh importance is more likely to affect like the status quo Uh, at large and i think if i was to like give a decent example for each of these things i think like mick foley would be someone who's very influential who who changed the way a lot of people see wrestling who changed the way a lot of people a lot of like wrestling fans see themselves in regards to getting into wrestling and someone like triple h is on the opposite end of the spectrum who i don't think like i don't think you can take any 25 year old independent wrestler right now anywhere in the world and be like, Hey, is your favorite wrestler triple H? And they'll say yes, but he has been undoubtedly important on changing just how the business has worked. Uh, at least within the framework of WWE, the largest promotion around that, that wields a whole lot of influence and importance, both upon the rest of the world. He's been instrumental in that in the last 20 years, but those are two like fundamentally different people who, who change things in different ways. Um, so the first thing I wanted to do was like sort of set that groundwork of like these are different sorts of 
of of change. These are different sorts of power that these people wield. Beyond that, I was trying to like think about how exactly wrestling has changed in the 2010s, and I came down to a couple different topics that I think we're going to talk about a little bit. Some of which I've I've mentioned on like my blog before is stuff I talk about in my writing a lot, like the the, the homogenization of like uh, independent wrestling styles, but how that's also come with it like sort of a funneling into different categories that have been more separate than they ever have before um an increase especially recently in the last couple of years uh an increase of like ambitious emotional storytelling especially in long form matches something of an increase in nostalgia acts which isn't that's not anything new in professional wrestling but i think it has increased on at the very least an independent level as of late so i so i wanted to not only just get a hold of like what these terms we're using are but i wanted to see like what exactly has changed since january 1st 2010 to me when i think about what has changed since january 1st 2010 i think about how in 2010 pwg is clearly one of the bigger indies in the united states but pwg isn't pwg yet pwg is still like a wrestling hotbed yeah i would definitely call it that still but pwg doesn't reach that um critical mass of like everybody from hollywood when they go to a wrestling Mm -hmm. show it's like this oh let's go see this cool underground thing called pwg like Mm -hmm. sophia vergara or whatever her name is wasn't attending pwg in 2010 mm -hmm. so while pwg is very good that year pwg isn't what it turned into in a lot of ways it's a down year for ring of honor in 2010 um mm. kevin steen after um no, Kev- no kevin steen's still there up to that point i believe no hold up no he isn't yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah he is um but we get the cabana um steen and generico carino stuff that year we have edwards and davy richards going back and forth oh, in yeah. some stuff that might come up <laughs> like some stuff that might come up for the for like as far as something like styles that's an interesting idea uh, that I, I think we do need to explore before we do anything else. Uh, the the concept that like influence and importance aren't always positive factors. Yeah, that, yeah. Like these 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 influential and these important people aren't always changing things for the better. Um, and whether or not we perceive them as better or worse is a very subjective thing as well. So like uh, before anything else, like I just want to say, not all the people we talk about here are people that I endorse. <laughs> Um, if we wanted to, we could also like go right over right out the bat with a guy that like I just mentioned there, and one that's like a Davy Richard. But we can get back to that in a couple of minutes. But I wanted to get back to like kind of like the wrestling landscape in 2010. WWE is not very good in 2010. Nope. Bad, very, very bad. Uh, CNA is in one of his down periods and doesn't really start getting better. I would imagine till like the end of 2011. I would say. Um. We still have Evolve. We still have DG USA. I think that was, just, I think that was, I think that was Evolve's first year. Uh, I think it's their second, second year. But they, 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 I don't think by January 1st, 2010, they had been a company for a full calendar year. Right. Um, so it's a very new company. DG USA has, what, two years under their belt at this point. So the independent wrestling landscape, at least in the United States, is, 
very different with a still very active Gabe, Gabe Sapolsky running two promotions and two promotions that are like, I would imagine by this point are still kind of decent, good, depending on your taste and, um, your taste, your taste in um, Gabe's booking in particular. But to really go back to what's different when we, when we get to like 2010 is one, New Japan's prominence and two, the rise of the European wrestling scene as a whole. Totally. Which are like the two biggest stories as far as non WWE stuff goes, as far as the decade that I'm concerned. Very much so, yeah. Um, so by the time we get to, I'll say 2015, we have Progress, WXW, RevPro, ICW as these main companies at the forefront of the, um, European expansion, and then by the time we get to 2016 and 2017, we have places like Fight Club Pro and Attack starting mm. to get more love. Um, OTT. OTT, especially in the last um, couple of years, has really risen out of nowhere. So uh-huh. that's where we get a lot of the big business stuff that we've seen in the 2010s. And then New Japan, um, in this sudden burst of popularity, and I wouldn't even call it sudden, it grew and grew and grew and grew to the um, monster that it is today but it's like it keeps and keeps getting bigger and as someone that I wasn't like I wasn't watching 2010 2011 New Japan mainly out of choice I was well I was still watching DDT and Dread like specifically you were like nah no New Japan kind of like it, it, wasn't like, it wasn't like appealing to me so it was like I was watching like DDT Dragon Gate um, if it was like a little All Japan, then I'd be watching All sure. Japan. And then I just didn't really wa- start watching until about November 2012. Because that, that would have been the month after Tanahashi versus Minoru Suzuki at uh, King of Pro uh-huh. Wrestling. So I watched it after that. For me, I wasn't like necessarily on the ground floor with it. I wasn't like there watching like entire, uh, the entire Okada rise to prominence and him shocking the, shocking the system. But I was there pretty early with it, with it. So still seeing New Japan get so big to the point where it is now has been an extremely crazy thing to witness. But those are the two business, um, mm-hmm. parts of the last decade that are definitely the huge difference in where we are from January 1st, 2010. Well, there's another note, uh, in that we've already outlined like the ways that influence and importance might be might be different concepts and specifically you're talking about how these changes with these two regions um have been business oriented do you think that in turn these rises in popularity have been influential like artistically hmm. is yeah that's a harder thing to track yeah. in the moment too is the thing yeah it is a hard harder thing harder thing to track in the moment what I will say is Japan didn't always go for long man events as far as like it being like a wrestling wide thing in the country um especially in new Japan. especially in new Japan yeah all Japan always all Japan was known for having the longer main events that was all Japan's thing they were Great match, long term storytelling. We're gonna go long, and we're gonna hit all these notes, and every single thing is gonna be super mapped out. Like that was the All Japan thing, and really, um, New Japan has kind of like adapted like that old like nineties like All Japan like approach to wrestling matches. Uh huh. In some ways, like in a few ways, they have like 
adopted that old approach to wrestling matches. Um, your mileage on which style you like more, which era you like more, you know, whatever, let that be aside. But if you just look at the style and compare the style, you definitely see the similarities in where, like, you see the family tree is what I'm saying. Um, yeah. A lot of that I think you can trace back to, um, Hiroshi Tanahashi, which was a point that our friend Simon recently made in that, like, here's a guy who, uh, focuses a whole lot on, uh, limb work, even if it doesn't necessarily always lead directly to a match finish. Uh, it's a guy who is very much based around the idea of proving his worth as, like, a tough guy, standing up to people who, um, aren't a pretty boy with anime hair, <laughs> like him. Um, a, a guy who, who really needs to, like, stand up for and exemplify his promotion as the ace of New Japan for a solid, like, decade. Um, and, and those are all qualities that I think you can, you can point at something like King's Road, like Classic All Japan, and, and say like, hey, there, there's a lot of similarities here. Uh, and I think more so than just anybody else, Tanahashi is the guy who stands out as not someone who is strong style, whatever that means here in 2018 anymore. Uh, but as a guy who did harken back to, uh, an older form of wrestling from a different company. Mm-hmm. So as far as we've seen, like, New Japan style, change in their main event in their main event scene we've seen that sort of trickle down we've seen that like places like ddt are offering longer main events we've seen that in noah although again noah is a more direct line from that king's road into the new into the um 2000s and all that Mm -hmm. stuff but it transferred over to noah it transferred over um Sometimes to Big Japan, Big Big Japan is the only one of the only companies where it's like kind of inconsistent on the time length, exactly what they're going for. If the limb work is gonna be uh, important down the stretch or not, so Big Japan has kind of remained in the middle. But as far as like the larger companies, um, even a Dragon Gate, Dragon Gate when it's come, when it's come to their big singles matches is known for having some mat work that isn't particularly good or interesting mm-hmm. or good selling. And that comes from a person that's a fan of Dragon Gate. That's been a criticism of the promotion for such a long, long time. Uh-huh. So I do think there has been some sort of style shift. Maybe not directly from New Japan, but a lot of that King's Road era that we talk about has that influence. And I think New Japan kind of increased it, so to speak. So, like, that's, uh, this entire concept is part of, uh, what I've come to, to refer to as, like, the homogenization of wrestling. Uh, in, in largely what it comes down to is, like, people who were young people in the 90s or who, uh, grew up in the early aughts, uh, the previous decade to this one, um, got older, became professional wrestlers, became, uh, notable, important professional wrestlers in their own individual areas. And on some level, like maybe not just a one-to-one comparison in that they're not, they're not out there doing kawada kicks, but on some level they wanted to emulate the sort of wrestling that they enjoyed in their youth. Um, and with something that was so ubiquitous as classic all Japan, even, even in America, I think like everyone worldwide to some degree, uh, has come to adopt that sort of style. Um, and have mixed and matched it in their own individual ways. But as, as those individual scenes continue to 
intersperses like you know as america as as more americans and more europeans continue to go over to japan and as japan makes its inroads into both america and europe all those styles mesh together to just be sort of uh an amorphous slightly baba tinted form of wrestling Mm -hmm. which i mean you can i'm not necessarily the happiest person about it um some people might be over the moon about it but uh it's it's a weird idea to think about because it means that one of the most influential people of this decade i think might be someone who has been dead for 18 years yeah and like this will like irritate some people but it's like when we think about the homogenization of wrestling and how wrestlers were Fans and then became wrestlers and some in, like, in some way which a lot. that which that totally has increased recently mm-hmm. in recent memory mm-hmm. more so than it used to be more more so than it used to be like just uh, sports stars who either failed or uh, had to leave their initial career for some reason mm-hmm. and then became wrestlers and then keep in mind a lot of people were wrestling fans and then hated because that you get made you get, used to get made fun of for being a wrestling fan back then so. Now we have the increase of like being a wrestling fan became a cool thing to then become a wrestler, you know, which we can attribute to make someone like Mick Foley that you mentioned earlier. Um, sure. So people like Johnny Gargano and David Starr, while they might be really good wrestlers that I enjoy watching, I also can't particularly put them in the influence discussion because a lot of what they do. Mm-hmm. has come from a bunch of other people, especially in regards to like a David Starr where I've said this to you and um, others before where I don't like it. <laughs> David Starr like at his worst just reminds me of another Adam Cole. And to some people that may be like some huge insult, but you can remember that Adam Cole mm-hmm. at one point in time was a very, very, very hot prospect in professional wrestling. People loved his in ring. People thought he was great. People thought he was like this entertaining, charismatic promo if you go watch 2010, 2011, 2012 Adam Cole, you'll see that me calling David Starr him isn't a, like isn't necessarily like an insult. Totally. It's just like what David Starr clearly liked or was watching at the time. David Starr clearly had a lot of Kevin Steen in him too. So like like there was like I'm not doing any of that as an insult. That's just clearly mm. what David Starr was into when he got when he got into professional wrestling. Mhm. So that's it there, but it's like, it's interesting how these wrestlers can be really good, great wrestlers, wrestlers that people, people call like the best in the world or have these match of the year caliber matches, but you can't necessarily call them unique wrestlers either. And that's always been a thing. Like that's, that's, that's been, uh, ever since wrestling became worked, I think that's always existed. Mm. So we talked for 20 minutes. We've laid the groundwork for everything that we're going to discuss in this episode. I've already made people mad about David Starr. So, <laughs> which way do you want to go? Well, I have I have two topics of discussion that I do want to get to at some point here that I think we might just arrive at naturally. Um, but I think the best way to do it is to jump right in with a name that you mentioned just a couple minutes ago, who is certainly my pick for the most influential an important wrestler of the decade, someone we've talked about before, someone who you might agree with uh, for that moniker, uh, and it's Kevin Steen. Yeah, so let's get right into Kevin Steen. And to a lot of people now in 2018, <laughs> um, now that everybody 
has decided that Kevin Steen, Kevin Owens is the new punching bag for WWE main roster, I guess. And and not for invalid reasons. Not for invalid reasons, but he's the punching bag for people that don't want to like bury Jinder Mahal. You're gonna go you're gonna go to Kevin Steen because Kevin Steen hasn't been good and this isn't an endorsement of him. But if you look at Kevin Steen from two thousand nine up to twenty fourteen, and even I'll give him twenty fifteen too. Sure. Is I don't think as far as just like a single act, unless we're just like like obviously you're gonna throw out like a John Cena or whatever, but I don't think as far as like a single We'll act get to Cena that has been there from two thousand nine to twenty fifteen consistently and they were on a prominent level consistently in that time period, there is no one more important to the wrestling business as Kevin Steen. <laughs> Why is that, though? Kevin Steen is the first guy in my history watching independent wrestling where it became cool to be a fan of Kevin Steen and not watch independent wrestling. If you knew who Kevin Steen was... That's all you needed to be as far, quote unquote, in the know with professional <laughs> wrestling. Kevin Steen was the standard. If you didn't know Kevin Steen, then you didn't know anything else about professional wrestling outside of WWE. <laughs> and like, it sounds nuts to say, especially when like a TNA existed. So like, you could say yeah. people knew your AJ Styles, your Samoa Joes, and all that stuff as TNA was coming up and more famous names went. But as far as like wrestling that wasn't, on Spike TV or anything like that, like, Kevin Steen was the standard as far as, like, how wrestling was perceived back then for people that were going in to the independent wrestling scene, not knowing who these guys were, not knowing what to expect from this bubble that they have not been in yet. And you see Kevin Steen, and by the time people jump in, he's this guy in basketball shorts and a t-shirt. <laughs> but... Kevin Steen changed how independent wrestling fans look at wrestling. Kevin Steen mm. changed aesthetically, like what a guy can wear in professional wrestling and still look credible. Kevin totally. Steen changed. I'm not going to say he changed like what like a big man can do, but it's like Kevin Steen was like like one of the, like first like super indie big dudes that we got like like we gave credit for like being like so athletic and agile and look but, he could yeah like look he could but he's it. like he's he's a different sort of big man from joe though mm-hmm. you know like he's not he's not a monster he's he's still a pretty um pretty not sympathetic a pretty vulnerable guy it's just like his uh, i think what drew people to steen was his intensity yeah and um as well as his intensity his like just his um off the cuffness like you mentioned earlier with with david star and uh like the way he talks shit uh, being directly pulled from Kevin Steen. That's not just a David Starr centric thing. That is like worldwide. What? Wo- sorry, got a speech impediment. Worldwide in wrestling, uh, where I think Kevin Steen like brought this new age of being verbose and being mean and being petty in the ring. Um, and that's like, very central to the rise of PWG. That's very central to like his storyline with El Generico across multiple different promotions, which I'm sure we'll get into. Um, that's very central to like him changing the game in, uh, like, uh, 
shoot interviews and like reinventing what we know as the modern shoot interview, which I think is one of his biggest contributions to wrestling in that like he pioneered this, this sort of like friends having a chat, just like sitting down to talk to each other for a couple hours, sort of shoot interview, which has become like the backbone of the high spots wrestling network. And without the high spots wrestling network, like I don't know where independent wrestling streaming services are today you know what i mean like that i I think that sort of thing being absent or being a shell of what it actually is in reality would have set like the business back five years in independent wrestling and i think a lot of that you just trace back to steam who's who's also like a pwd uh a pwt's guy like one of the first people on pro wrestling tees uh for better or for worse uh a guy who like who didn't um who didn't like change the game merch wise i think we've talked about Colt Cabana being sort of like the, the, the flashpoint for that, but he's a guy who like skyrocketed that to the next level to the point that like, like, he has to bring multiple, multiple like bags with him to every town he goes to because he's selling out shirts. Yeah. Like that's the thing is like, we look at like, Kevin also is like the first guy I can like recall, like in like, maybe not the first guy, but one of like very, very few at the time before he leaves that can actually make a living of independent sure. wrestling. And this wasn't something that a lot of guys were doing back in 2012, 2013, 2014. It's something that, um, as Ring of Honor got bigger, that the Young Bucks were able to do, or that the Briscoes got closer to being able to do, and Jay Lethal it's, got closer to, closer to being, to being able to do. Like, it's something though, I think we have to keep a perspective on that specifically. Um, because you go back and you watch, uh, an older form of shoot interview with people like CM Punk or Samoa Joe in, uh, I think their famous one is from 2005. Like, they both mentioned being able to make a living off of professional wrestling. Mm. But, like, that's pre-2008. That's pre-stock market crash. Like, that's that's like a whole different world economy. And I think Steen, um, along with a couple other guys we're going to talk about here, certainly tonight, um, is one of the first people to be able to build that economy back up on an independent level. Yeah. Um to go back to my point on bigger guys in professional wrestling, at least on the independent scene, yeah, we had a, some, we had Samoa Joe, which is one of the like forefathers of like independent wrestling, obviously. And Samoa Joe did have his athletic spots. He's an athletic freak for like his size, but Kevin Steen was in a lot of ways a flyer in his early years. And totally. we've seen him do some crazy, crazy athletic things. And I, my point, my point big, like my bigger point was that I'm not sure. I can't trace the whole route of let's see big guys do cool mm. shit and flips and all this stuff back to Kevin Steen. Are you saying are you saying Vader would have never done a moonsault without Kevin Steen? <laughs> <laughs> I'm definitely saying that Kevin Steen retroactively made Vader do a moonsault. I mean no, but there are I mean like I'd I'd point to someone like Ace Romero, maybe Brian Malonis. Like those guys might not be wrestling without a Kevin Steen. Mm-hmm. So <sighs> Now we get to 2015, and by the time Kevin Steen is like full steam ahead in WWE by 2015, um, NXT champ has already had this like uh, series with John Cena. We've already had CM Punk and Daniel Bryan come through and change WWE in ways that we're gonna talk about. We've had a we've had a Seth Rollins um, become the WWE champ and hold the belt for the entire year, pretty much up until November. So. It's not to say that Kevin Steen was like responsible for this like big indie boom, but Kevin Steen getting signed was, uh, I guess I'll try to speak of it as someone that was a huge Kevin Steen fan. If you were watching wrestling back then or you were into that scene back then, 
Kevin Steen was like the one guy that you knew should be in WWE, but you didn't think would ever get to WWE. I I had a personal um a personal example of that that we might get to, but like totally Kevin Kevin was a guy who like was clearly was clearly capable of taking on that sort of workload and thriving in it and I'm not sure if he ever successfully did so. Uh though at the same time, I'm not sure that uh, the WWE of the last couple of years has been all that friendly to anybody. But um, yeah, like he was a guy who, when he got signed, it was like finally, like they saw what we've been seeing for a decade. Yeah, and I do want to give seeing credit though, because he at the time I would call him the biggest name they had signed, like as far as like people in that new. Arab, you could go back to Mystico. He wanted to go like to like a like a proven like box office draw when like when at the time Mystico came in. But like Kevin Steen was probably the biggest name they had signed up to that point. Bigger than Devitt, bigger than Kenta, yeah. Um, definitely bigger. Bigger than I'll give, I'll give Claudio. Bigger than Tyler Black. I was I'll give I would give him bigger than Hero. So it's like Moxley. Uh huh. Like he's he is the biggest name they signed up to that point. So. When we have this developing and burgeoning NXT brand in their big year, which is 2015, and you have Kevin Steen, the biggest indie star in the world, as your champ and headlining shows, like, now obviously now this is where NXT, like, get, like, starts to hit that groove. This is where uh-huh. NXT, like, becomes, like, the hot brand, and opposed to, like, 2014, where it was still, like, on the network and we're having specials that were well received and big time like main events that people were into but by the time we get to 2015 that's when people are reading about NXT television and every takeover is on some level good to great to a lot of people that year and mm-hmm. a lot of that goes back to like the era of like Kevin Steen being on top because when Kevin Steen leaves a lot of people aren't as into NXT that's when we mm-hmm. get into the August and um End of the year, 2016, with the Finn Balor, some of with Joe stuff that a lot of people are uh, mixed on. A lot of negative, a lot of negative opinions on that. Personally, sure. I like at least I like the first two matches of that feud, but a lot of people are really mixed on that. And that is directly after we get the exit of Kevin Steen from NXT, and you can just see that when it, when they experience their hottest period, they have Kevin Steen on top. So, if there was anything that you wanted to add on scene before we moved on to someone that you, that you wanted to talk about, or maybe no, I, no, I, I think we very we very thoroughly uh, ran down Kevin Steen. Do, would you consider him the most influential character of the of the decade? <sighs> because it's it's almost it's an interesting idea because like we talked specifically about how he hasn't done a whole lot since 2015, and I wonder if that disqualifies him. I'm not going to say it disqualifies him. But I think there's another person, maybe like stylistically, that you can throw in there. He doesn't have the same sort of like business changing um, impact that Kevin Steen has. But uh-huh. there also is someone that we're going to talk about that I'm not sure hasn't had the biggest impact as far as like the style that we're seeing now. But I would go on record saying Kevin Steen, as we discuss right now, is the most influential person. I can think of of the 2010s. Um, but I remember posing this question on Twitter before, and one of the names that I was kind of shocked to see pop up so frequently was the name of one Chris Hero. And 
this led to another discussion we had of Chris Hero's fucking great. An all-time <laughs> great wrestler. This isn't news to anybody. To a lot uh-huh. of people, the greatest independent professional wrestler to ever live. He, has, he hasn't quite had that same success translating to WWE, but he's successful. He's in a good spot. That's all you could ask for for a guy that's given like so much of his time and love mm-hmm. and care to the thing we know as professional wrestling. But people sort of point to Chris Hero as the big as one of the biggest influencers of the 2010s. And it led to me and you going back and forth, like maybe people sort of conflate being great mm-hmm. with importance. Because as some as people that are like really big Chris Hero fans, mm-hmm. when someone said, Oh, I think the most I think the most influential wrestler of the 2010s is Chris Hero, I'm like, well, where? <laughs> I, I sort of gave it some thought since then, and I and I I, I don't think I'm ever going to get to the point that some of those people who tweeted at you are at. Um, but I I do today think that Hero has been quite influential on this decade in a certain way. Right. Um, specifically, it's it's by his leadership mm. in that uh, in 2010 we're getting the last vestiges of Daniel Bryan on or Brian Danison on the independent scene as he gets fired in square in scare quotes there by wwe and brought back once again in scare quotes um and in between those two periods has uh, a hell of a little run on the independent circuit um but during those first couple of years hero and his running partner claudio castagnoli were easily the best people around who were doing a whole lot of the heavy lifting across multiple different promotions uh, being, you know, the stalwarts, being the, the best guys on most shows. Uh, and Hero continued to do that, uh, with exceptions being granted to his NXT, um, stints, his multiple NXT stints at this point. Hero did that up until, like, January 2017, in which he was, like, in my opinion, like, the best guy on the indies. A guy who, um, a guy who was a rising tide that lifted all boats. A guy who didn't just work ROH and PWG and the big name indies. A guy who was like cutting his teeth and, and making people get better in IWA Mid South and in all sorts of little promotions around the world, not just America either. Um, one of the first guys who like really branched out to Europe before Europe got big to where it is today, um, especially in regards to WXW. Um, so like he's stylistically, I think you can make the argument that like he is one of the first guys to take a whole bunch of um, different uh theories and ideas from worldwide wrestling from like lucha libre from Puro, from uh european wrestling from american wrestling and and form them together into an amalgamation that is becoming more and more popular we talked about the the homogenization of wrestling uh hero i think is like an important stepping stone on that tradition but i don't think he's necessarily like the guy there but more than that i think he is an influential person in that like he is the veteran of the independent scene in the 2010s. So to go back to that, would you feel safe calling Chris Hero more of an importance pick and not an influential influential pick? I would I would say influential, and in that like he's not shifting business so much, and he's not changing the way that wrestling is structured. Maybe he brought more eyes to Europe, like I, I said, but I don't think that was necessarily like changing the game there but he he's a guy who like who makes um 
He makes a Drew Gulak better. Who, who makes a Trick Davis better. Who makes um, a Zack Sabre Jr. better. Who is incredibly important to the, the scene today. Uh, and like without him influencing these individual lives and careers worldwide like i i don't think we get wrestling in 2018 where it is mm. uh and like when, like when we were talking about chris hero and like when i was like setting up um the introduction of hero to this conversation it wasn't like dismissed the claim of him being sure. um this influential person but when you put him like in that top spot and mm-hmm. see people that i think are really smart putting him in that top spot it like beg me like beg me like question like oh okay like i wonder where that's coming from and yeah. now that I hear it sort of like more fleshed out here, I can definitely see where you're coming from. I don't think he's a top tier guy in that regard, though. That's the thing is like he, there, there's so many other people. Um, I, I don't think there's any necessarily anybody who did a better job of elevating people. Um, and I'll, I'll probably preach that for decades to come even. Uh, but I, I, I don't think he's a guy who like fundamentally changed how people do wrestling or how people have run wrestling mm-hmm. in the 2010s. And to go back to, and to go back to something that you can, um, help trace back to here was another, like another guy that was really important in the merch game. Like we, we referenced it like with Coca like Cabana during the Kevin Cena discussion, but here was another guy that was doing that stuff too. Not quite mm-hmm. on the same level as Cabana, I'd say, but another guy that took cue and saw like what Cabana was doing as far as merch goes, um, back then. And, that then trickles down to other guys and other people taking notice and all that stuff. So not exactly the godfather of it, but someone that was right there as it was becoming to be like, to be a thing that independent mm-hmm. wrestlers were doing. Can like easily remember seeing him at IWA mid South shows where he's bringing this giant tote bag and like stowing it under the ring during shows. Like, like he, and that was in fucking 2008, you know, that was years ago. So to move away from Chris hero, who now that we've talked about it, I can definitely see having him on the list. Who's someone else that do you think deserves to be in the conversation? So I want to switch gears a little bit to. I actually want to. I want to float an idea by you of someone who I I don't think is terribly influential, but who I would feel remiss in not including in this sort of discussion. Okay, run it by. Um, uh, and that is Zach Ryder. Who? Someone who who became very popular with a certain segment of the wrestling fan base in WWE uh, in 2011 initially, uh, when he wasn't being utilized on TV much, but had a YouTube show of his own that uh, that grew to rather large proportions and led to some very hilarious moments of fans chanting his name during uh, the Rocks segments during that year. Um, uh, but I, I struggled to to say that he was terribly influential in that a lot of that was flash in the pan stuff in that, um, by 2012, he is, he's, he's nobody. And, and that, that, that spark is like sort of faded and it's not necessarily his fault because he came, he came up in that, uh, in an incredibly spiteful promotion at the peak of its pettiness that, enacted swift justice on his audacity to get over (laughs) um but it's like as much as and i don't think he was necessarily like one of the first guys to even utilize social media in wrestling um i i would trace that back to like live journal and those sorts of blogs from the decade prior which aren't 
necessarily what we understand as social media today, not Facebook and Twitter, but, but I think we're utilized in a similar way. But I, I think, like, I think Zach Ryder is important. I think he's a, well, I think he's notable. I think he's prominent. He's someone who should belong in this discussion. But like, to use a football analogy, um, back in, uh, I think it was 1895 was the first forward pass in American football. Um, and it was done by a, a UNC running back by the name of Joel Whitaker, I think. Um, and two weeks later, uh, John Heisman throws another forward pass, makes a touchdown, and changes the game fundamentally forever. Ushers in like a new way of playing football that hasn't changed, will never change theoretically um and in like left his mark on the sport to the degree that like the best college football player every year gets a trophy named after him like he like he is like mr football in so many different ways and like zach Ryder is not a john heisman he might be a joel whitaker he might be like the first guy to do a thing or maybe like a prominent first person to do a thing but he's not the guy who changed the game mm-hmm. um to go back to wrestlers using social media um that's one thing that I've always given Matt Hardy credit for, is that Matt sure, Hardy totally. Matt Hardy was one of the first guys, um, even back in like two thousand four, two thousand five. Like, when, remember when Matt Hardy gets fired from WWE during the whole thing with him and like him and um Edge and Lita, is that he's all live journal and all these things like getting his story out there, and this leads to crowds at Raw chanting, "We want Matt, we want Matt." And that is definitely one of the earlier cases of someone using social media to get themselves over. Because if Matt Hardy isn't doing that, and he isn't telling the story of what happened, I don't think any, like, again, this isn't, like, uh to downplay Matt Hardy's abilities or his popularity, because, <laughs> like, the Hardy's popularity is still, still super hot upon people that aren't, like, um hardcore wrestling fans. If you ask someone yeah. that's a casual, they will always remember the Hardy boys. But... I doubt that in 2005, when this happens, if Matt Hardy isn't campaigning the way he is, that people are chanting "We want Matt" at live shows, mm. and that is re- and later later on, even in um, well, when he was in ROH, like the whole like like his whole series of YouTube videos, you remember those? Mm, Big Money Matt. <laughs> yeah, like he does he does the same thing again, like where he's like, I, I don't know if I would say revolutionizing, but he is he is like. Taking a different approach, a non-standard approach that has, in the years since, become standard. And now that we've mentioned, now that we've mentioned them, I kind of, I think I'll like, well, I'll tie Matt Hardy and Zack Ryder together. I'd, th- I'd say Matt Hardy's done more, but Zack Ryder still has that one instance, which is super important. But mm. these are guys that kind of like influence on the, like being the elite, being possible to do. Mm-hmm. As far as uh, like is... these true Long Island story and Matt Hardy with his um big money Matt videos, completely different approaches to doing YouTube videos. Matt Hardy was focused more on doing comedy, um, and being over the top. Zach Ryder's again, I was never a huge fan fan of it, but it's more like you know like doing it on your phone and like it's really like pretty much like like really just do it yourself approach to it. And for mm-hmm. it's where like Matt Hardy's looked a little bit more professional. But without like show, without like content that Matt Hardy and Zack Ryder were producing and getting so popular and getting so much buzz off of it, I'm not sure something like a being the elite would be so possible to do in a 2018, 2017. Do you want to talk about the Bucks then? 
yeah, this will be a perfect transition to talk about whew, the Young Bucks. There's a lot to unpack there, though. This was like this was my pick for your like number one most influential crew. Hmm, it's huh. Like when I think like I when we were, when we were talking about this episode, come on, we we actually did this episode in like two days' notice because I just wanted to do an episode. So uh-huh. it's been a while. Yeah. So when I threw it out there that I just wanted to do an episode, I never really like sat down and thought like who would my number one be because I wanted the mm. discussion to be sort of the catalyst for like where I wind up going by the end of this thing. And the Young Bucks were certainly in mind, but now that we talked about Kevin Steen and we talked about like all of Kevin Steen's biggest business influences, Kevin Steen, while I made some about like him being like the like cool athletic big guy that can do the flips and all that stuff, I'm not sure he has the same business and stylistic influence that the Young Bucks have had. And granted, like a lot of what the Young Bucks do comes from that um Toriyaman Dragon Gate system that that um the more say machine guns then got a lot of uh-huh. then got a lot of their stuff from. But at the same time, the Young Bucks are so intertwined that I think even more than like a lot of the Dragon Gate acts like a speed muscle or than or the more certain machine guns, like they're more synonymous with that style than anybody else, I'd say. And interestingly, um, I would say that they have improved upon it in a few very notable cases. Mm. Um, as much as I love the Motor City Machine Guns, like they have never been a team that I've thought of as great. I love to watch them. They are mechanically superb most of the time, but they're not, they're not guys that I get emotionally all that invested into. Um, and I can't say the same for the Bucks either. Like most of the time, I would just rather not watch the Bucks. Uh, watch a Bucks match like it's just been so long at this point they've been doing mostly the same sort of thing for so long that like it's it's just a little much for me um especially when they're running in promotions that I tend not to enjoy uh for their booking or for their fan base or a combination of these factors but I look at something like Young Bucks versus Golden Lovers or Young Bucks versus World's Greatest Tag Team or not um World's Cutest Tag Team and I see matches that are very much in line with the sort of like spot fest, go, 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 um, move, move, move tag team matches of a prior generation of like the last half of the aughts, but they're so much more emotionally grounded and have so much more like ambition to them, uh, in the way that like the very best Dragon Gate tag matches might have, mm. or the way that like, um, a really good Michinoku pro tag match from the late 90s had uh and like nobody else is really doing that and i don't think they're necessarily like hitting it out of the park every time they try but like those are a pair of guys who have managed to somehow be both the most annoying people on the planet but also people who get me invested in their big blowout matches Mm. and this is where sort of like the merch discussion and business discussion like takes a big definitely because a lot of like the young bucks were someone were, were people that like got thrown out there for like uh psycho like for our psychology is dead on the future for us to do. There's like I'll, no, there's a lot to unpack there that I'm not sure if you'd even want totally. to do. But it'd be difficult. Yeah, like there's a lot on the young bucks, and one of these things is the merch game. And after these guys were, if you know the history of the young bucks, they were 
contemplating retirement. Good. The nothing had, oh, okay. nothing, had, nothing had really gone their way. Um, I thought you were going to say good Christian boys. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's that's when we did the episode. Um, okay, but nothing was really going their way. The WWE thing. Um, yeah, the, man. Like it's weird to think that like eight years ago they might have just quit. Yeah. Again, like, I know when we talked about Kenny Omega stuff, it was like, yeah, it's crazy how these guys, like, were almost, like, sort of just gone from wrestling and how different right wrestling on the is if these guys totally. just quit. So it's like, these guys didn't have things going their way. And then when they start just, I guess, like, sort of like rebranding themselves by the time we get to, like, 2010, 2011, 2012, um, uh-huh. it's like these guys have, like, fully harnessed, like, what they want to be, what they liked. And whether it was like a parody of itself in other styles, eventually, mm-hmm. whether it became um, this thing that you got sick of seeing because it was the same exact formula every single time. In a lot of cases, um, regardless, these two th- these two guys became huge, huge, huge stars. And mm-hmm. in my opinion, they're the biggest reasons as to why the Bullet Club has gotten as popular as it has, undoubtedly. Like, Prince Devitt, incredibly popular. AJ Styles, even more so. Kenny Omega, arguably even more so. But, like, without the Bucks there... Um, Consistently, for, for like... For, yeah, for most of that time, like, there's no way. Mm-hmm. So, to me, the most important Bullet Club members, and I think people complain about the like the like the way the Young Bucks have just, like, won the IWGP Junior Tag Title so much, and how <laughs> it was, like, the belt with that belt was a hot potato. But, like, if you look at it, like... I think even the New Japan office knows because, like, the Bucks are, like, New Japan contracted talents, how important the Bucks are. Like, it may not, you may not reflect in, like, some kind crowd of, like, reaction. crowd reaction sometimes. <laughs> but I think, I think the Bucks got reactions. Maybe not everybody else, but I think the Bucks got more than people give them credit for. But, it, I, I don't know, that's, that's a hard thing. To, we'd have to, like, almost go case by case yeah. to break that down. but... If you look at it, like, I think the New Japan office has always known the Bucks' importance. Uh-huh. So, I think from being, like, the most important act of the most important non-WWE entity of the 2010s, maybe, in Bullet Club, that all automatically is, like, putting you on the board on top of mm-hmm. the merch game and being putting out a new shirt every single week, wearing your own merch, designing your own merch, and, um... yeah. Like having like playing off of um, relevant things in pop culture, or um, little wink and nod jokes, or um, the tassels and everything else. Like everything that they were doing became like such a unique brand because they took everything that they liked and put them together. And it's not necessarily unique as it's things that were popular back in the nineties or early two thousands, uh-huh. but they were never blended together the way the Young Bucks blended them together. And that created this, like, sort of movement that at first took full control of PWG and then took full control of everywhere else in the wrestling business. And when you really, like, phrase it that way as they're the most important part of the Bullet Club, they're the kings of merch, they are one of the first acts that notably were able to make a complete living off of professional wrestling while not being signed to WWE as far as like mm. being like United like being guys live in the United States. Um the stylist the stylistic influence like that's see that's that's the one where I think they're lacking. Mm. 
is this stylistic influence. Like, not to say that, like, they haven't, um, there haven't been, like, young tag teams that have formed since their rise in popularity that have taken a lot of things from the Bucks. Uh, like, I think the Rascals. Yeah, but that's about to say, like, the Rascals, like, the current PWG champions. (laughs) Totally. Uh, but, like, at the same time, I think that was, as I mentioned, just sort of, like, the natural progression from the sort of thing the machine guns were doing, the, the sort of thing that uh, Speed Muscle was doing. Right. Um, so, like, I, I don't know I don't know if there was necessarily innovation there, but maybe innovation isn't necessary for influence. Yeah. No, like, I can say the machine guns innovated something, but the machine guns never reached the heights of popularity that the Bucks did, while the Bucks were doing totally. almost the exact same thing. So the Bucks, like, almost just have to get the credit there, just based on, like, exposure and reach. Eyes on the product, yeah. So, and then, yeah. and then as, as, as I was trying to segue into there, like, um, as much as I'm not going to enjoy this show for a variety of reasons and think it's, uh, not what people want it to be all in like this whole 10,000, uh, person crowd thing, like Kenny's a huge part of that, but I, I have to give so much of that to the box. Yeah. Like, here's the thing is like, all of Kenny Omega and I think Cody's a, incredible job truthfully with like what maybe was like what maybe. was like what it was like what he's done um since sure. he's been gone from wwe but like people like again because they're a tag team and all this stuff like i feel like maybe a lot of people like aren't taking them like seriously as far as like draws and how much power they have the way they used to with like other teams that we call as like all-time greats like the fantastics and midnight express or rock and roll express but i think as far as like star power you have to throw the bucks in there and I think the Bucks are a huge, huge, huge part of All In because this is the blood, sweat, and tears of Nick and Matt Jackson. This is everything that these guys, not going to WWE, not signing to WWE, not taking NXT deals, um, getting full-time contracts from Ring of Honor, from Ring of Honor, like this is like everything that these guys have worked for. It's like, it's not to say that Kenny Omega hasn't wanted the same thing, but I doubt that Kenny Omega has wanted to run, like, <laughs> his own show with yeah, 2,000 like people there. <laughs> it's never been Kenny's Omega, Kenny's, like, ambition to, to run a huge independent wrestling show in Chicago. Like, that's not him at all. Like, he, he, he wanted to achieve a dream in Japan and has largely done that and is maybe going to do that here in a couple days. Um, but, he is like in a lot of ways. I think he's just sort of window dressing for this. Mm-hmm. And Cody, you can like say Cody was in the ear making it happen because Cody had like wanted to prove a point to his former mm-hmm. employer and all that stuff. And that stuff is valid. But like as far as like years and years and years of groundwork into it making something like this possible, that falls back on everything Nick and Matt Jackson have done for the last decade. Yeah. Every every. Every Bullet Club t-shirt sold went towards All In. And you're not selling 95% of those without the Young Bucks. Yeah. So, I think by the time we end the episode, I'll be asking you who you think the most influential has been. I'll give who I think the most influential has been. But when you say for account, like, everything Young Bucks, it's hard to deny these guys. It's really, really hard to deny these guys. But a direction I do want to go in is someone that hasn't wrestled in the last four years. Okay. But his rise to prominence and his sort of martyrdom and how that sort of like changed the professional wrestling landscape 
during his rise in on his way out and that's one chick magnet punk cm punk i hate ugh, i hate that that's now under oath <laughs> it's, it's so fucking it's the worst <laughs> but um do you see that picture of him today yeah <laughs> i don't think that's a real picture yeah. like that's like unhealthily skinny <laughs> i don't know he's a middleweight man that's not a middleweight that's like, like might, might be Walter maybe Walter I don't know but um like dude let's dude, dude had <laughs> his wrists his wrists he couldn't wear a watch well let's talk about one CM Punk and someone that oh um, um, god I'm again this isn't like really regards to like his influence of power but like fuck man I really miss CM Punk <laughs> sure yeah, we, we talk about that from time to time just like we throw on an old Punk match and we're like damn like he was good at the wrestling. Throwing a promo, like, why is, why is no one this good anymore? <laughs> yeah, we were watching a lot of promos recently. Um, but this this brings me to a point that I wanted to get to earlier uh, that I thought we were going to touch touch on with John Cena, but uh, it comes up here more naturally. Um, to what degree do you think someone can be influential in 21st century WWE? When the product is so micromanaged, is so oriented towards one crazy old man's thoughts and opinions, um, and is is very much set in its ways, despite the fact that people like Punk, like Brian, like Owens have have changed um, what what pools of talent they draw from, but not necessarily like what sort of stories they tell. Like uh, to use Cena as an example, like. Is John Cena himself influential, or is he merely like the 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 fully realized embodiment of WWE's plastic production since the Attitude Era? I'd have to say that Cena is more the embodiment of what WWE has wanted at their at their micromanaged best. He is the pinnacle of what uh-huh. they want. They're like big stars to be when they have every single control over them and i love john cena but like he's very much a system driven mm. guy and company man he's wanted he that's where he wanted to be that's what he wanted to do and this is exactly what he was and what he did for the company in his time there now to what degree do i think can someone be successful or inf- like influential in wwe <sighs> that depends because I think you can have influence over the WWE crowd. And that then mm. affects the rest of what the company attempts to do. Um, I think having that kind of... Let's take it back to 2011. In 2011, 2010 to 2011, or like the first half of 2011, I can't stress enough how bad of a time period this is for WWE. <laughs> I was looking at... Shit, um, like. I don't remember why I even pulled this up. I was looking at like the capital punishment card mm. from 2011 and like the, the poster that had like these horrible caricatures of Cena and Ray and president Obama. Like it was just bad. Mm-hmm. It is a poorly written and thought out time in WWE. And by the time we get to June, July of 2011, um, the news of CM Punk's contract expiring soon is, um, has been out there for a while. But, you know, people didn't really think much of this match happening. You know, CM Punk had been like a top heel in WWE for a while. So yeah, mm-hmm. okay, R-Truth just got a title shot. CM Punk getting a title <laughs> shot. I'm like, okay, whatever, makes sense. And then CM Punk 
decides to flip wrestling on his head. And this is where CM Punk becoming what he is sort of forced WWE's hand. Because I mm. do think they would have attempted... It, it's See, that's the, that's the problem, though, is that like he didn't actually shoot on them yeah, in that did. promo. Yeah. Like, this was a scripted promo. So it's it's hard to make this argument of like forcing their hand by their own hand. Uh, yeah, sure, sure, but it's like CM Punk and the way he delivered the promo, the conviction, mm. the entire, like... The fact that it was him doing The fact that it was him, this guy that, like, the rumor, like, rumors have been out on CM Punk for such a fucking long time. The, one of the uh-huh. godfathers of independent wrestling. Like, there's this guy cutting this promo, where he's, like, sitting on the stage, and everything about it is, like, a completely different look to what we're used to getting on WWE television. So when I say that he forced his hand, I'm not necessarily, like, saying, like, CM Punk went rogue, took a microphone, and just bombed on these guys. But it's like, uh-huh. the storm that followed, I don't think anybody expected. And I don't mm. think that once CM Punk cut that promo, that they had intentions on him winning the WWE title. By the time, he, by the time everything is, by the time everything is done, and all the dust has settled, and they saw the kind of business impact or social impact that CM Punk was making on the product by doing that, they realized, okay, not only do we need to resign this guy, but we need to make sure we keep him. And, like, really, imagine him cutting that promo and then not resigning that WWE deal. Like, that's, like, some crazy shit to think about. It's like, this dude, yeah. <laughs> oh, like, this dude was, like, legitimately, like, almost, like, not about to sign. And I don't for sure they had to sweeten that deal to get that guy to stay there. Because after he does that, like, you can... WWE, you mentioned it before, is a petty, petty, petty company. <laughs> Just Incredibly. recently with Daniel Bryan, um, regardless of how you feel about Daniel Bryan's actual health, the dude was cleared by doctors all over the world to wrestle again. And they kept mm. their one doctor from not clearing him and made him go through several hoops in order to just do that. And the dude was pretty much misdiagnosed by WWE's doctors and everything they were doing. So they then kept him on the shelf for close to three years. And to me, it's like they only let him go because they saw that his contract was running out. Mm. And they only let him go and like start wrestling and all that to shut him up because his, his contract was about to run out and they didn't want to let Daniel Bryan go to All In, Ring of Honor, <laughs> New Japan, and CMLL. Like, do it and do whatever. And, and do whatever. Because if Daniel yeah. Bryan did, guess where a whole bunch of wrestling fans are going? Yeah, you know what? Like, I think Punk certainly does deserve a nod in WWE in that regard. In that, like, using his popularity as a leverage in a way that, like, I don't know a lot of people have ever done that before. Um, and it, it, it could only, like, it could only have been him, someone who was, like, killing in merch sales, someone who was, like, uh, immediately popular when he walked in and became incredibly popular, especially in the mainstream after this pipe bomb promo. Um, somebody who, like, also changed, like, the way they do promos in the years since. Like, they've become more shoot-oriented. Um, and that's some, that's something that we didn't get like a whole lot outside of like Paul Heyman previously. And it's, 
see that's that's part of why i brought the cena question up because like i think it's almost necessary for you to be uh antithetical to wwe meaning like some sort of like an independent person some sort of an outside person to be influential upon the company itself Mm -hmm. i think to go back to get like delve deeper into that point it's like you have to be like so and this is go this will go back to like a larger point of what WWE is becoming. But at the time you had to be like so different than what WWE was traditionally like using in order to make a difference. And now what we're seeing is like yeah, they started using a whole bunch of independent wrestling guys that they would have never used before. But at the uh-huh. same time, whatever the ulterior motive is, if we make this a norm and keep signing these guys, then when one of them gets popular and does whatever, like, we don't have the same risk of a CM Punk and a Daniel Bryan because we're used to seeing these guys already on top. They've they've already given us what we wanted, and these guys are the ones that we're seeing win championships and main event shows and all that stuff, like AJ Styles. It's it's sort of like a law of diminishing returns. Like, it's... I'm never... WWE is never going to surprise me again to the degree that I was surprised by Bryan winning the Money in the Bank briefcase and punk winning the wwe title in the same night mm. like i will never be gobsmacked the way that that night like floored me mm. and there's a thing where while brian and punk um are martyrs for two different reasons in um, wwe history and really the reason for why wwe has been the way it has been this decade as far as like it's separation from the fans, the growth of an even the way they, even the way they book Roman, the book like, straight up, not yeah. not not even just like a, a a political hit sort of thing, like the fact that they have a far more popular person in Brock Lesnar that they could just keep the belt on while they like uh, chip away at this person that they sort of maybe want to put in the next spotlight, like that doesn't happen without guys like Punk and Bryan. Mm-hmm. And really, like the kind of like separation that the main roster and WWE fans started to have, and why something like uh-huh. NXT became what it was. Because uh-huh. if you look at like everything that's going on in the WWE main roster, from CM Punk leaving to Daniel Bryan getting hurt, and when Daniel Bryan like comes back, he gets hurt again, and all that stuff, like it just eats away at you so much. And then having Roman, who was like become like the vessel of like all the animosity and people and they were all the people think is wrong with WWE and how they run things, which is not fair to Roman. As I've, <laughs> I've talked about when I did the art of start, I'm like, it's not necessarily fair, but like, that's just how the chips fell. And like, yeah. that's just where like the separation continued to continue between fans and the company to the point where like, we're in 20, we're in June 4th, 2018 right now. And this has potential to be the worst year in WWE since like 2010. Seriously. Because like, if you look at the entire landscape and like everything that they've done to themselves in the, in the first six months of the year, they have nothing going for them right now, especially after the brand split. And I don't see why fans wouldn't continue to get like more annoyed and fed up with the product. Cause not only are we still getting like, are you still getting like the same Roman and like even like putting like worse scenarios like like facing fucking gender Mahal and shit? It's like you have nothing to latch onto now. The most you have to latch onto right now is Seth Rollins and his Intercontinental Title. 
And that is like a bonkers Bad. thing to think that would have happened in like 2015 where people are like peak mm. sick of Seth Rollins. Like mm. that is an insane thought to have, but like that's where at least Raw is right now. And mm. maybe SmackDown has a chance to get better, but they have, they're put over here putting <laughs> Daniel Bryan with Kyle Cassidy. So who knows? But it's like when they're like, you take everything into account as far as like the main roster, like this is on pace to be like, one of the worst years, like, they've had in, you know, fittingly close to a decade. I mean, it... And maybe, maybe you trace that back to somebody like Punk. Like, maybe, maybe they don't get $2 billion from Fox or whatever if the pipe bomb isn't so mainstream. Mm -hmm. Like, maybe, maybe they don't keep putting somebody like Roman out there who gets a reaction, not necessarily the positive one that they'd probably help for, but a reaction. Maybe you don't get that if someone like Punk isn't the catalyst for so many reactions, both positive and negative, mm-hmm. over the years. Like, it, like it's... I, I've talked about this so much that like, I wish I could do like a deep dive into how crowds have changed over the years, um, especially in regards to chanting. Um, and it's sort of a hard thing to track, but like I... Like, I feel it in my bones that 10 years ago, people weren't reacting to wrestling shows the way that they are reacting today. And I think partly you can put that on the shoulders of CM Punk. Um, to move away from CM Punk for a little bit, as CM Punk is the flip side of the coin that sort of like forced his way into martyrdom. The other side is one Brian Danielson, who... All he wanted to do was be a wrestler and be a great wrestler and found himself in the middle of changing a company's entire card, their plans, Mm. and maybe being the center of one of their most petty things of all time. But really, like, what's the influence or importance of Brian Danielson and Daniel Bryan? Influence? Um, this is sort of a hard one. I think he's he's a guy sort of like Chris Hero in that he elevated so many people. Um, did so tons on the independent scene in the aughts and did so to some degree in the 2010s in WWE as well, uh, especially with guys like Dolph Ziggler, guys like The Shield. Uh, certainly gave Kane so many of his best matches ever. Um, I, I, beyond that, though, like I, I don't know that he's necessarily changed the game as a babyface. Um, maybe the sort of like corporate friendly baby face that can be, uh, commodified and, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Appropriated by WWE itself. Um, but he is to me so much more of an important figure in that he is like, uh, sim- uh, emblematic of like, uh, a, a very brief period of time in which it felt like, oh shit, they're finally like listening to us again. Um, a guy who, who, who felt natural and organic in a way that so many other top stars of the, of his day didn't. Um, a guy who was so much smaller than most, uh, top stars in the history of wrestling have been. Uh, a guy who was just like so antithetical to WWE and therefore, uh, representative of so much of the wider world of wrestling who achieved it all on like the biggest stage. Um, before we even get to the to the, um, the WWE stuff, it's like he's clearly an important guy as far as maybe not super important, but as far as the style he wrestled. 
Now, there were a lot of guys that were into mat work. Maybe not a lot of guys, but like the core group he was around, um, your Lokis and your Samoa Joes, were into that stuff as Danielson is coming up. The separation then comes when Danielson starts making his trips to Europe and mm. starts bringing over that style. And maybe you could say like Danielson's explorations in Europe really like influenced a Chris Hero to start going over there. But I'm not sure exactly the timeline on that. If they started going at the same time, if Chris Hero went before, what happened? Know, you might you might have something there. Yeah, so who knows? But Brian's one of those first guys to kinda of like bring the European style Mm-hmm. Or elements of it into the first. Uh, I doubt he was the first one, but he, first American I know of to do a Butlins tour. Mm-hmm. So it was like one of those first guys to like bring over a lot of the European wrestling style elements to the United States independent scene. And stylistically, you have to give him that. One mm-hmm. that I liked about Brian is like, while we have these Samoa Joe was like was really influenced by like Hash- like um, seeing Hashimoto and Toshiaki Kawada. Or uh-huh. low key clearly had a lot of elements of the Greek Muda in him, and like all of his like um, theatrics and movements and how he just moved around his body. He has a uh-huh. he's one of the more like unique body control guys I've ever seen in professional wrestling. Kind of like the way Muda will control his body. Um, I think Brian Danielson, as opposed to other guys, to those guys who were like clearly influenced by the big heavyweights. Brian seems like he was more influenced by the New Japan Juniors. And I thought that was like an interesting sign in like how different Brian was or what made them separate, like separate. Cause like, yes, he's clearly a big fucking like wrestling nerd, like Samoa Joe and Loki are. But I think his wrestling nerd, the nerddom took him in a different place. And it's interesting too, because like he's, um, famously cited that his favorite wrestler is Yuji Nagata. Uh, and as much as I love Yuji Nagata, like, wow, talk about like, one of the most bland heavyweights of <laughs> Japan's history. You know, like, like what is what is the defining characteristic of Eugene Nagata? You know what I mean? <laughs> I guess. Like, uh, man. But but it's it, I find it so interesting that a guy who uh, very much for so many years was, was depicted as, like, a very bland person, a guy who was great in the ring but didn't have a ton of charisma, latched onto this person who sort of also fits the bill but it, it helps him, like, become the baby face of a generation. Mm. I think a lot of, really, what kind of, like, Brian and Punk in particular is, like, yeah, we can see the changes in hiring practices. And we can definitely, if we were doing, like, Observer Hall of Fame voting, I'd be voting for both of these guys. Obviously, Brian got in last year, but I'd be voting for CM Punk, too, for the reasons, like, if you're able to change WWE... Like, even if it's just, like, who they hire and who they give spotlight and focus on, like, clearly you've made a difference in this very, very stubborn and petty company. Mm. So, even if it's slight, I would still be willing to give the give those guys, like, that nod. But as far as the company as a whole, I think it goes down to, like, how much, like, despite how much should have changed due to these guys... WWE not changing in main like like keeping keeping their foot on next is like I can't really like take the influence away from them. It's more WWE just snuffed it out and then like totally like happen. 
like you think back um do you remember that one photo in like late 2011 where it's all the champions in the fed mm. it's it's punk's got his wwe title brian's got his world heavyweight title uh, so, i believe natalia's holding one of the women's titles like kofi kingston and evan Bourne are tag champs like Zach it's, it's Ryder a has the u.s title yeah yeah it's like it's i'm pretty sure cody's yeah, Cody, cody's like, a continental champion, champion. And it's it, it felt like such a it felt like such a moment because it was like oh all these young people all these vibrant people all these people who feel so different the, definitive like, so much the, the of, definitive of what the crowd wanted like totally like these were these were people who like these were representations of what so many fans were looking for in WWE moving forward and at the end of 2011 it felt like oh like we're on the right track and then fast forward here to 2018 it's like. Brock Lesnar is WWE champion. Uh, the Hardy Boys have been tag team champions this year. Jinder Mahal has been US champion. It's like, it's, it feels like such a backpedaling in so many ways. Um, because that's just what this company is. And it's, it's so hard to make like meaningful progression. Mm-hmm. I do think, unlike a lot of guys, like CM Punk has like stories upon stories that like, again, in this like company where, Things like bleed together. It's like CM Punk has managed to like take material and make memorable stories out of them. Um, mm. Obviously, like even like dating back to 2009 with his stuff with Jeff Hardy. Um, after that, feuding with Rey Mysterio and Big Show. Uh, everything he did with John Cena. I would even point to uh, his feud with Daniel Bryan that lasted during the summer again. Which was more of WWE doing, like, for some reason, deciding we're going to do the right thing in summer of 2012 and put CM Punk and Dan Ryan together, the hottest acts in the company, and here's what we're going to do. And, um, obviously after that with Brock Lesnar and the Paul Heyman story, um, the Rock story, everything that we had got from him, we had story after story with that guy. And there aren't that many people in WWE history, maybe (sighs) Randy Savage. Jake the Snake, um, I guess Triple H, who have like those kind of like stories you can just like go back to and go back to that you remember off the top of your head mm. because a lot of what happens in that company just sort of like bleeds together and like eventually just doesn't matter. But mm-hmm. CM Punk was really the only guy of his generation to like take material consistently and make it matter. Hmm. And I think that's why I miss like his presence on the television so much because I don't want to not like WWE's product. Like I don't, I would like, I would totally. like, I would like to enjoy it. I would like to get enjoyment out of like every wrestling product that I watch. I like you get you get nothing out of something being bad. Yeah, like, I'm like I'm not like out here like fucking like writing like hateful reviews of things like because I, I don't have no I have, I have no interest in that. I'm a, like very like positive centric person when it comes like what I want to talk about what I want to watch and CM Punk was a lot of the reason why it felt like the TV had some direction while he was there it felt Mm -hmm. like it had some purpose while he was there it felt Mm -hmm. like week in week out you would see where CM Punk's head head is at what kind of mood he's in what the story Mm -hmm. is asking for him and how he's walking out and how he's talking like CM Punk would give you some progression and Without CM Punk, and even without a Daniel Bryan now, it's like, I don't know, like, if almost like Family Guy or something like that, where in the early, in the early, um, 
iteration of Family Guy before they started being um, more serialized or even like a South Park. It's like all this shit would happen this one week. And then by the time they come back, it's like everything just reset and went back to normal. And that's a lot of this feeling I get when I watch WWE sometimes now is everything sort of just resets and goes back to normal like an animated show show will. And I think that kind of presence, while maybe not an influential thing, maybe not uh, uh important thing, is why a person like CM Punk and Dan Bryan to a lesser extent is like so missed on the programming. Promotional consideration paid for by the following. Hey, pro wrestling announcer Kevin Kelly here. I want to make sure you are all subscribed to all the great feeds here at Place to Be Nation. It's really easy to do. Just head to iTunes or your preferred podcatcher app today and search and subscribe to the Place to Be Nation wrestling feed, which, of course, includes the full archives of The Kevin Kelly Show, the Place to Be Nation pod feed, and the pro wrestling only feed. Subscribe, listen, and then rate us and leave feedback today. And be sure to give Justin your true thoughts. I mean, don't hold back. After all, he is kind of a jerk. Just listen to Scott. Please be nations, JT Rosero and Chad Campbell here. We want to let you know that we have a ton of great podcasts available to you on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and PlaceMination.com. We offer them to you on two great feeds. On the Place to Be Nation wrestling feed, we bring you the Mothership, the Place to Be podcast, along with Main Event, Survey Says, The Monday Night Wars, and our monthly pay-per-view reaction show, as well as Jeff Learns Wrestling. In addition to these full-length shows, we also deliver special network podcasts and pod blasts on topics old and new. Over on the Pro Wrestling Only feed, we dive deep inside the wrestling business with a stacked army of experts leading the way. The feed features potpourri shows such as This Weekend Wrestling, Greetings from Allentown, Match of the Week podcast, and the Military Industrial Suplex. We also have shows that focus intently on certain topics like Through the Years, Worldcast, Strong Style History, Strong Style Story, and Mount Olympus. Plus, the feed has the full archives of legendary shows like Titans of Wrestling, Where the Big Boys Play, Letters from Center Stage, and Letters from Kayfabe, plus much more. And on our very popular Place to Be Nation Pop podcast feed, we offer such great shows as Talkin' Pop, the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular, NBA Team, PTBN Play, Sunday Groove, Breaking Balls, and Lucha Undead. As well as a vertical podcast heaven for comics fans. With the hard-traveling fanboys, Sellers Points, Todd Weber's Conversations, Geek and Sassy, and Marvel Age Podcasts. You can find all of these current shows, plus archives of our past podcasts, including the Kevin Kelly Show, as well by subscribing to both feeds on iTunes. And while there, be sure to rate and leave feedback today. All these shows, plus others, available at PlaceVation.com, where we cover pro wrestling, sports, movies, comics, plus in-depth stretch projects, and more. Be sure to support our site by using PlaceVation.com backslash Amazon when doing your online shopping, and download our free PTB Vintage Vault Refresh eBooks via the links on our site. We also want to thank our friends at Boneheads, Wing Bar, West Warwick, Rhode Island, and Fall River, Massachusetts, and the History of Wrestling.com. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr as well. PlaceVation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. So unless unless you had something more to talk about uh, those specific sorts of people, or, or maybe even John Cena, as since we did, uh, talked about him a little bit, um, I sort of wanted to switch gears here. All right. So where do you want to go on this one? I wanted to point out the fact that 
all the people we've listed so far have been white males from North America. Yeah. Um, in particular, like Americans or Canadians. Um, and it's, it, it brings me to an interesting point because like, as I'm typing up this list and, and I'm, 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 I'm making note of people who, uh, come to mind immediately and I'm making notes and sub notes of, of each, of each point that I want to make. Um, I noticed like, wow, there's like no women on my list. Uh, there's no black people on my list. There's no uh, Latino people on my list. There's no Japanese people on my list, even. Why is that? Like, what what is it about? What is it about like the 2010s that has has been such like a dearth of influence outside of like the most um, well off group of people in the world's history? Like, what what is it? What is it that is? I don't, I don't want to say what is it that has prevented these people from being influential. I think we can get to that pretty quickly. Right. <laughs> uh, but like, but like, why is it that I have one person of color on my list in total and he's half white? It's the person that if I had to um, really critically think and put a person of color or a woman on my list and this person happens to check off both would be Sasha Banks. And I think a lot of why maybe Sasha Banks doesn't come to mind immediately is truthfully because a lot of how, a lot of like how poorly they've written women in a lot of ways and since Sasha Banks has been on the main roster. Mm-hmm. And I've told the story before about how like when Sasha and Bailey had the Iron Man match in 2015. Uh-huh. How my sisters who had never watched wrestling before, had never cared about wrestling, sat down and watched that 30 minute match with me. And then after that, they wanted to see more Sasha Banks matches. Mm-hmm. And keep in mind, I'm a black dude, I'm a person of color. Like, this is like, Sasha Banks was important to them. They still talk about Sasha Banks to this day. They have the WWE network on our fire stick purely uh-huh. to watch Sasha Banks matches. And, that like kind of importance like can't be like downplayed, but when WWE isn't treating Sasha consistently as this big star, if mm-hmm. they book her inconsistently and give her this storyline with Bailey that went, eventually went nowhere, if during WrestleMania season she's on the pre-show and she's not um in a title program that you can argue that she should have been in, um, there's a lot of stuff going on. It's where like. A lot of like the what made Sasha Banks like who she was and like what made her so special is almost like getting stuffed out by the company. And Sasha Banks has like had a really good had a really good like first two months of the year. A lot uh-huh. of real frankly, the women in general kind of carry the programming for the first like two or three months of the year between totally. Sasha Bailey and Oscar like going out there and delivering time in and time out when they're paired with each other. So. It's not like it's not possible for the women, especially in the most important company in wrestling today, to like matter and deliver and help the programming. It's just that they're so selective and when they want that. And now with the Ronda Rousey coming in, who they're going to be giving so much of that focus to, the groundwork that Sasha Banks laid down sadly isn't going to necessarily give her maybe what she's earned. Uh huh. And it sucks. Like, it really fucking sucks. But I think that go- that's part of, like, why we only have white males on our list. Um, 
Well, what is it? What is it that's preventing somebody from like Japan getting on here? Like I, I, there was part of me who thought like you would come out guns blazing saying like, Oh, Okada is the most influential wrestler of the decade. Um, Okada is someone that I plan on talking about, but a lot of like, I think Okada and like Daisuke Sekimoto are guys that I would have considered putting on here and guys that I sure. do want to speak about. But I do see it as really like going into like what has changed. Like I can call Okada the most important wrestler of the decade. I could call him that. And I don't think there's really like too much of an argument saying that he doesn't have a case. Uh huh. I could say Shinsuke Nakamura is, um, when in his time there was maybe the biggest part of New Japan's expansion as far as like native talent getting over with U.S. audiences. But I think because there's been so much change in New Japan, especially in the last two years, especially between like people like Kota Ibushi getting prominent and leaving and coming back, the rise of Kenny Omega so quickly and swiftly. Tetsuya Naito's rise, Shinsuke Nakamura leaving, AJ Styles leaving, Hiroshi Tanahashi getting pushed down the card, Minoru Suzuki getting more popular than, he, than he's ever been before. Like, there's been so much going on in New Japan in particular that it's almost hard to pinpoint, like, okay, like, this is the most influential person, this is the most important person, because, and really, may, or maybe almost be a, maybe a testament to the company where the test, like, the company as a whole, because they've had so many people rise and have their stocks rise and become bigger stars like uh, that's a testament to how like well the company has been presenting and um, marketing these guys but I'm not sure there's been a single person other than Okada that I would like be pointing to as this big influence or importance and that's one thing that I did want to talk to you about is what if we have a case where maybe it's not a wrestler that is the most important maybe it is a company and the company's entire philosophy and approach. Maybe it's a, maybe what if it's a single promoter or three promoters or whatever that are the forefront of this big influence or change in professional wrestling. And one of these companies is New Japan. And the other one that I feel like would deserve some mention here is Progress. And the reason why I say Progress is we talk about how big European wrestling has got. Mm-hmm. To give perspective, the last two years, I would have voted Progress as um, promotion of the year in the Observer if I, had a, if I had a subscription, if I had a ballot. And the reason being is because between running in Sheffield, Manchester, London, Birmingham, they are running in four cities. They've run 2,000 seat buildings. They've done this, what, two, what, two shows a month, sometimes more. Yeah. For, for like the last consistently eight, for two, three years ago. Yeah. Like for the last like eighteen months or so that's been a been a consistent thing. Um their own their own like streaming subscription service that I'm pretty sure is the most subscribed to out of every wrestling service that like that's not WWE Network or New Japan World. I don't know that, but like they're they were definitely like an early pioneer and they are huge. Yeah, like I'm not sure, but I they might have more subscribers than the high spots. I think as far as just, like, the the business of wrestling goes, it's, like, I've never seen a company as far as, like, purely going by, like, business and, like, starting from the ground up because these are guys that, like, were fans, like, well, not really necessarily fans, like, 
Smallman and Joseph were fans. Riley wasn't as big of a fan. But three guys that weren't involved in professional wrestling at a high level, starting from the ground up and taking this thing literally worldwide from shows in the United States, shows in um, Australia just recently. Like mm-hmm. these guys are all over the place and it's becoming really already in its like a short existence. It's only existed since 2012, but it's becoming one of the most like famous promotions of all time already. Because totally. as far as European wrestling goes, I think the conversation has to start with progress always. And there are guys that have come out of progress that have been important or um, big names for the European scene. They gave multiple guys like their like big starts, like a Jimmy Havoc, a Will Ospreay, a lot of in a lot of ways a Mark Andrews, a Pete Dunn when he first started like getting through is like he's not a progress guy, but the big uh-huh. angle that takes Pete Dunn over the top is the British strong style and everything that progress is doing with them there. I think progress more, maybe more so, or maybe equal to New Japan, have sort of been the tastemakers of professional wrestling in the last over the last few years. Mm. In that, if you look at anything that's sort of like became popular or hot the last few years, a lot of it is rooted in what became over in progress. Whether it be Travis Banks, Will Ospreay, Marty Scurll, Mark Haskins, whatever, it all seems to be rooted in what became popular in progress. And then that person or those people getting popular everywhere else. Um, I think what that argument comes down to is just like what perspective you have on where things begin. Um, we started this podcast talking about PWG in 2010 uh, and how they, they grew into this monolith of independent wrestling. Um, and anybody who is anybody wrestles in PWG. That's sort of how I view progress in New Japan uh, in a lot of ways. Uh, the, the same, like, anybody who's anybody wrestles here. I don't necessarily know that that means that they're tastemakers, though. Because, uh, to use a, an example that you mentioned here, Travis Banks. Like, Travis Banks is a guy who, like, cut his teeth in Fight Club Pro and and um, very much had uh, uh, a rise in popularity due to his specific story in Fight Club Pro that then the next year progress turns around and it sort of like crimps almost entirely. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's like, I, I point to something like that and I, it makes, it makes me think that like these promotions aren't so much tastemakers as they are like the indicators of existing taste. Mm-hmm. Like they're not the ones out there making people take note of, of, of certain wrestlers. They're the ones who are like, Oh, Hey, you might've heard of this person two or three times. Now we're booking them and they're the biggest thing in the world. Like, um, they're not the, uh, they're not the, the innovators. They're not the stepping stones. They're not where people are cutting their teeth. They're where people are making their most money, which has its own value and has like, it's not something I'm going to detract from, but it's, it's like, I hesitate to say that like, these are, these are the promotions that like, are making stars of professional wrestling. Progress definitely was that at one point. I think 2015, before 2015, they certainly were that with like Will Ospreay, with Jimmy Havoc, with people who have become like worldwide names to some degree. Will Ospreay, especially someone who is like huge. And that's almost entirely on the back of progress. But in the years since then, I think they move away from that more and more to the point that like, I can't with good conscience say that they're the ones shifting opinions. Right. 
So, even with that being said, I do go back to the reason why I've never like really like put progress in the same categories of PWG is like even with all this happening is like progress has always been using their smaller scale guys like what like um a guy named Danny Duggan is in the semifinals of the Natural Progression series facing a, totally. facing a bigger name that you know could have seen some like other places before coming to progress and Mark Davis and. There's other like people like that who progress is still booking, like Never Say Die and Spike Trevay and like that. So that's what sort of I've always hesitated putting progress in that same bubble. But I get where you're coming from there. Now mm-hmm. to go back to New Japan, now when you take when we take the term like tastemaker of professional wrestling, you almost sort of like think of a critic. You think of a, a reporter historian, whatever you want to go to. You think of a Dave Meltzer. You think of these people that put their opinions out there and let people know, like, oh, wow, I've loved this match so much. I gave it this. I gave it that. And you almost view that as a tastemaker. But... Mm-hmm. And it's go- like, like like yourself, Quentin. <laughs> I'm not an influencer at all, and I <laughs> would appreciate it. You certainly are. appreciate it. If you think I'm an influencer, please tell me in my Twitter... Because I am not one. QT underscore Moody on Twitter. <laughs> Hopefully that was going to end. Thank you. Um, I think that like when you think of the term tastemaker, like that would initially be what you think of. But I think there's something to kind of like teaching your audience and like making like making like making your audience like have like a taste for something. And I think maybe not making them, but kind of like kind of like, like gradually kind of like testing them and testing them and like feeding them more and seeing like seeing like if they spit it out or if they don't like it and i think that's what new japan has done in the last few years from the okada stuff to like kind of like gradually kind of like getting in there more title switches longer reigns more main events like, kinda like seeing like what's gonna like what's happening here and then all right it worked we don't have to worry we don't have to worry about it anymore see what we're doing with tetsuya naino and ej styles kota bushi kenny omega Hiroshi Tanahashi being prominent and sliding down just a little bit. Even in someone in Jay White, the current IWGP US champion, like came in, had to match with Tanahashi, um, beat Omega for the title um, the next month. But you kind of, if you've been watching Jay, like he's not like dominant. He's not like someone that's been given like a whole bunch of main events and stuff like that. He's sort of like kind of like weaning himself in, like and we're like being uh-huh. kind of careful with him and. It also goes down to the style. The style that we talked about changing. Um, I wish I had the time in front of me, but I'm not sure how long the first Tanahashi versus Okada goes from New Beginning. Oh, um, it's like, I don't think it's 20 minutes. I think it's 19. Mm-hmm. It's either it's either that or it's 24. Like, it, it's it's just under, like, a prominent period of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll, look, I'll look it up as, you're, as you continue. And that's... Sort of what I'm getting at here is, and let's quote unquote, let's call it the Okada Bushi Road era. We talk about these longer main events coming to prominence, whether it be Okada in them, or Hatanahashi in them, or AJ Styles in them, or Naito, or Kenny Omega, or whoever else being in these matches. Like, that's the style that gradually they took to. And I think a lot of the ghosts that they kept pushing and giving the fans more samples in taste and pushing the boundaries a little bit more to see if the fans would take to it. And the fans have kept eating it up to the point where next week, as we're recording this, 
Kenny Omega and Kazuchika Okada are having a <laughs> two out of three falls no silent match following them having a 60 minute draw at last year's Dominion show. Yeah. Again, it could, it, it could be nuts. Uh, just as a note, the first Okada, uh, Tanahashi title match went 23, 23. And look at where we are now. Six years, six and some change years later into the Bushy Road era and the main, and how that main event style goes. I mean, shit, like even something as simple as the New Japan Cup has matches going 35 minutes. Like, uh-huh. or, uh, just the, the best of the super juniors just had its longest finals ever. Like, this is where we see the style changing. And I think it's hard to say because I think for a lot of reasons, WWE will never be doing what New Japan does as far as like match lengths and all that stuff. But what I will give New Japan that WWE like maybe is sort of like looking for or looking into is like how you could like keep like gradually giving the fans more and more and adding more onto these matches and just like seeing like eventually like if they're going to be like, eh, we don't like that. But like yeah. that time hasn't come yet to the point where like where okay. we are, there's a point like where we are. <laughs> WWE is way less subtle about things. Uh, and that's what leads us to have, how long was that fucking gauntlet on raw? Like 70 something minutes. It, yeah. It was over an hour. Like it was long and you still haven't seen it. Right. I watched the, I watched the raw last parts. Oh, okay. You just didn't see the whole thing. Like, I mean, I, shit, like I can't, I can't tell you to go back and watch the full thing. It's not worth it. <laughs> I like over, I like the overall parts, but like, yeah, the whole yeah, thing. Yeah, those are those are both great, but everything that follows is not. Um, but yeah, I think going back to like sort of like this tastemaker discussion is really, I think New Japan sort of like just gradually and gradually like adding more to these matches. Like, is definitely like an important like. Context because it's not like just just sort of like going fucking crazy and like adding like cra- like a crazy amounts of time to these matches like you just mentioned it like twenty like what twenty three what twenty three twenty three twenty three twenty three is the match of the first Okada Tanahashi and I imagine if you keep going through the Okada, Okada Tanahashi's again I imagine if you went through and looked at the time like the lengths of like the future G one finals the future Dome shows like. You can see, like, there's a steady increase in what's going on here. Not just in the main events. Um, just the semi-main events. Like, fucking Chris Jericho versus Kenny Omega that we just had. Like, totally. Like, you just see it, like, going through everything. And it's a gradual increase as to where, like, I get people not liking the main event style. Or the length and how long they go and everything about that. But it really is a case of, they didn't, like, force-feed it to you, like, right off the bat. Like, okay, we're going from 23 minutes to fucking 42. And you can't do anything about it. Like, we went from, like, 23 to maybe, like, 29 to about 35 to everything else. And, like, kind of, like, got these gradual increases after that. And kind of, stay with, like, stay with the tastemaker discussion. It did lead to this question popping up in my mind about, really, a Dave Meltzer, even the voices of wrestling and, like, the real, like the real, like, kind of like critics and tastemakers that people point to, not necessarily like us, but like people that are looking in, like looking to get into a new Japan and looking to get coverage of something that isn't WWE and you know, again, new Japan isn't so new and cool, not new, new and cool to us anymore, new and cool to us anymore. But what used to be new and cool to guys. That's the thing I want to touch on too. In that, like, you could see new japan as a tastemaker simply by being 
different. Mm. Uh, something that it, it inherently is when compared to something like a WWE or just Western wrestling in general. Um, like I think of, like I think of like all my friends and all of my internet acquaintances who have gotten into New Japan over the years, like their first, their first reaction to something that they see from New Japan is like, oh, it's just, it's so different. It's not what I'm used to seeing from, from professional wrestling in North America. And like that does change tastes mm. because people realize like, oh, I like this thing. I like what I can, uh, what I find here. I like what I can project into this thing in terms of storytelling and characterization in a way that like I couldn't do with a whole lot of like, uh, American wrestling. I, I like, I like how intense these matches are. I like how athletic these matches are. Things like that. Like it is, I don't necessarily know if like they're changing a whole lot by the way they book or who they book, but like by being inherently themselves, they do, they do alter opinions yeah. and, and, and t- change tastes. As far as like going back to like the changing of tastes and going back to people like Dave Meltzer or like, Lands and Rich Crates, like, Crates shoes are, like, Voices of Wrestling, it's a lot of, like, these guys, like, getting more popular and prominent and being the go-to for New Japan coverage and being, like, so overwhelmingly positive about it. And, like, there's nothing wrong being positive about it. They enjoy the product. They're allowed to rate and say whatever they want about it if they love the matches. And I'm not uh-huh. going to blame anybody for being, like, super hop, like happy and, like, over the moon about something. I'm not going to tell somebody that they're being a little dramatic or extreme because who the fuck knows how they actually feel about a match. Like, that's them. Sure, sure. So it's like, but seeing these guys um, do that has more than definitely led to, like, people seeing this and going, okay, I've got to watch this New Japan stuff. I've got to watch this New Japan stuff. i got to see this fucking Ishii guy that they keep go- giving four and a half stars and four three quarter stars So i got to see this. And... I think that word of mouth is part of why this new era of professional wrestling is so different because I think more than ever, ever going by word of mouth, and I'm not saying that like online didn't exist and like forums didn't exist back in like the 90s or 2000s, but because we're all so online, because we are all on the internet, it's not just... And, and centralized into like one or two different sites. Mm-hmm. Like we're all together on like the same places and... I think that's where that word of mouth becomes even more important because I can just scroll through my Twitter right now and I can guarantee that there's somebody talking about some wrestler that I haven't seen yet. And that word of mouth can travel a long way. What mm-hmm. we just like fucking Daniel Makabe, something that like we like someone <laughs> that like you introduced me to last year that you're actually friends with. And mm-hmm. I watched a Timothy Thatcher match and I really enjoyed that. That turns into me checking out for his matches on every 3-2-1 stream on Twitch. Mm-hmm. And that word of mouth travels because you have people in Ireland not watching Daniel Makabe matches. Like, <laughs> like, that is a lot. And that's just, like, the era we're living in right now. And I think people like Meltzer in Voices of Wrestling, and even to a lesser extent, like, people like um, Dylan or Tanner or, like, real, like, real Hero and Morton. Like, 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 <laughs> oh, man. I love... <laughs> Like the, I love the, I love the jump between Dylan and Tanner. <laughs> That's, what a shift! It was like I love that. These are like the people that kind of like when they put something out there, like people are like going to listen, like take notice uh-huh. of it, and they don't necessarily, uh-huh. necessarily even have to be like have a website or a blog or whatever. Like that's just the nature of being 
like centralized on one website where you can give your opinions and all that stuff. And I think really what I'm kind of sort of getting at here is I think the taste of professional wrestling, while it's like sort of varied, it's also like more than ever kind of like in the power of us because it comes down to like who we follow, who we listen to, who we want to take advice from, who we want to take recommendations from, whose opinion do we want to give a grain of salt, whose opinions do we like actually care about. More than ever, this is coming down to like what we like want to see and what we want to hear. Like you going to Segunda Kaeda for like CWF and like loser reviews opposed to me like looking at like, I don't know, on Ferris's blog for like European wrestling, like European wrestling recommendations. Like it's like sure. th- that kind of separation, like as opposed to like what you're looking for. And I think that this like kind of like, taste and just like really kind of like us defining like the taste of professional wrestling has made it, you know, maybe a little more standoffish when it comes to like the wrestling bubble that we're in and everybody kind of like being, I don't know. It's a thing where it's like almost feels like lines being drawn a lot of the time, but this isn't a breakdown of like wrestling mm-hmm. and social media. It's sure. more to get back to maybe to get back to the polarizing idea I'm talking about when it comes to wrestling media and wrestling taste making. Let's get back to something we haven't mentioned yet. Um, though we've kind of brought his name up a couple of times. One, Kenny Omega. And Kenny Omega is a name that he can be applied to a lot of bubbles. We've done a four-hour podcast on him. Kenny Omega's name can go a lot of places. Um, so frankly, because I've been talking so much, when the name Kenny Omega gets brought up to you as far as the influence and importance discussion of the decade of the 2010s, where do you stand on it? Um, this was... This was one name that I, I deliberated over a lot. And I, like, I ultimately just didn't write him down. I didn't take any notes on him, but I thought about him a lot. Um, and as you've mentioned, like, uh, we've done a podcast on Kenny before, and I'm currently working on an article that I've promised for the last 18 months on my relationship with Kenny Omega. I have, like, I have, I have a lot to say about the guy, uh, and how, how my fandom is informed by having been a fan of him. Um, it's in a lot of ways, like I think he, he embodies some of the same traits as the young bucks. Like we mentioned, like this, this form of storytelling, uh, this hyper emotional, uh, hyper athletic form of storytelling that gets more and more popular by the day. Uh, I think a lot of that you can trace back to him. Um, not just what he's done in New Japan as of late, but like his work in DDT, his work in New, J- uh, his work in All Japan, his work in, uh, PWG. Like he's always been this sort of person. Um, I, that, so that's, that's a point for him, like influentially, um, in the ring. It, it's not like, I don't, I don't think he's necessarily like, I don't know how to really frame this idea. Like I, he's not, he's not doing something new but he is the best of a thing that has existed for a while and uh has so far surpassed uh in some people's perspectives some people's opinions has so far pers- uh, surpassed what has been done before in that regard that it is almost like he's you know reinventing the wheel um and that's a very influential thing for fans and for wrestlers alike uh as far as importance goes like he's uh again a big part of like all in a big part of like the theoretical 
growth of the independent wrestling scene outside of WWE, even outside of New Japan, as it were. Um, it, I think he sort of handicaps himself in what he could do by being a guy who has such relatively humble ambitions in that he just wants to stay in Japan and wants to wrestle there and be a top guy there. Like, he's not... He, he's not a guy who's jet-setting a whole lot. He's not a guy who's who's um, helping a scene grow. Like, as much as I hate Will Ospreay, like, he's done more for Australian wrestling than anybody this decade. And, like, that's that's something to, to note. Um, and Kenny's simply not doing that sort of thing for Australia or for Europe or for America or, or, or anywhere in the world. Um, he's just sort of a, a quiet guy who sticks to what he wants to do uh, which is main a stupid character in Street Fighter and put on wrestling matches I don't like. Um, but in being that, he has brought so many more eyes to professional wrestling. He's brought so many more eyes to a specific type of professional wrestling that people would have not seen before. Uh, and he is, I mean, he is certainly worthy to be in this discussion and belongs on these lists. Um, one thing you didn't mention that sort of, that sort of affected you too there is he's not the first guy to do it. But maybe to the degree in which he has kind of like settled and made his name in Japan, and as a white as a white guy, yeah, as a, as a white guy as a foreigner, and it's kind of like led to someone like a Mike Bailey who got his opportunities in the United States kind totally. of taken away from him, and he saw what someone like Kenny Omega, fellow Canadian, was able to do and sort of making the same footprints in DDT, and this going to other guys like a Jay White. Um, coming in and being able to do this thing in New Japan or David Finley or even people like um Tamatanga and Tangaloa, like like people that uh-huh. are in Japan like full time pretty much. Even like a Carl Anderson, like there's like pre- like credit for like being like in the roots of that too. Um a Prince Devitt. Like a lot of these guys are like the roots of like being able or comfortable enough with that um with the office, with that fan base, with like the culture in Japan to just like work there full time and be there full time. And that's something that Kenny Omega took to a different level with the level of stardom that he's reached. And mm-hmm. I'm not sure that there's ever been someone as far like Kenny Omega that's been a foreign white dude in Japan full time and then reached the heights that he has. Obviously the people that mm-hmm. have been like super fucking popular that have been, like, regulars in the company. But they weren't, like, staying in Japan. Living in Japan. Like, Stan Hansen... Doing, Va- doing uh, go-home promos in Japanese. Yeah, like, Stan Hansen and Vader are, like, super fucking popular and important in the history of, like, Japanese wrestling and foreigners in, in specific. But Kenny Omega is a completely different animal. And uh-huh. I think a, someone like Kenny Omega doing that then leads to... What if Jay White works out? What if Jay White is able to then do these same things? And I think Kenny Omega definitely has a big spot in that. I think Kenny Omega, and this really maybe goes back to even like New Japan, New Japan, and like specific again. It's the focus of great matches returning to like mainstream. Mm. And now WWE has had its like fair share of when it's cared about match quality. It's ha- it happened. Um, Post Hogan in the 90s, when they bragged about how good their matches were with Brad 
and Michaels and everybody else. Like they like their calling card was their match quality, or at least they like marketed it as their match quality. Um it, it popped up again um in about 2013, 2015-ish. Um, sort of popping up again where they started calling, calling things match of the year contenders on commentary. Like these are like tag words and buzz lines that are like commonplace in WWE now. And I think a lot of that is like New Japan's focus on great match after great match being like how you get fans on your side and how you get people to believe in your product. And I think Kenny Omega is another like piece in that where well, I, I I think he's the pinnacle. He's the pinnacle. He's yeah. like Kazuchika Okada isn't the best bout machine, you know. Mm-hmm. And that's what Kenny Omega's role is in New Japan um, for the most part. He might just be the IWGP champion by the time next week rolls around. Who knows? But uh-huh. his calling card in New Japan the last two years has been he is the guy that's going to go out there and give you the guaranteed great match. And I think the guy that gives you the guaranteed great match as far as mainstream goes has never, like, other than Shawn Michaels and a lot of that, that character has a lot of, like, different takes that you can go into that may have, like, helped or hurt professional wrestling. But <laughs> not, not since, like, Shawn Michaels has there been, like, someone that's sort of been, like, as far as, like, I'm, like, the great match guy as far as, like, Kenny Omega. And, and yeah, and as, like, I very specifically have been uh, watching that period of Shawn's career recently, and, it like, a lot of that is just framed as, like, um, as pride yeah. and as athleticism, whereas Kenny is like almost breaking kayfabe with a whole lot of this. Kenny's like, like, Ken, like, like Kenny's is reality. Like yeah, like and like whether it's like the quality of the matches like is up to you, but like when it comes to like what he's aiming there, he's out there aiming for whether it be versus Golden Lovers, Okada, Naito, even the Jay White, Chris Jericho. Like what he's aiming for is the same thing every single time uh-huh. that he's out there to have a great match. And I think Kenny Omega's philosophy like that, I mean, almost surely kind of like inspired like other guys outside of WWE. Like, wow, like this great match stuff can really take you far. Cause even with Kenny Omega losing at Wrestle Kingdom 11, like the see how far it took him. See how that AJ Styles versus like John Cena match went like what? A three weeks later after, yes, after Wrestle Kingdom 11. Um, everything that we saw as far as like Seth Rollins like copying the um Rainmaker, Rainmaker knee that Omega uh-huh. did in that Wrestle Kingdom match, like you saw like how clearly like it trickled down way faster than like almost like any match that's happened in the decade. And I think Kenny Omega he doesn't because Kenny Omega, as you touched on, isn't as like power hungry or like must have, like, same, like, kind of, like, outside the U.S. validation that maybe, like, Cody or the Young Bucks want. That kind of, like, in a way hinders his, his place in a discussion like this. But for Kenny Omega completely carving his own niche, you can't take that away from him. I'm not sure how much that goes to him influencing the entire scene, though, or his importance to the entire scene. Yeah, do you do you think moving forward that becomes more of a, a prominent thing? Like, we've already seen entire promotions based on the idea of, like, oh, hey, these guys wrestle better than anyone else you've seen. But, but do you think we get to that point where people are like, no, I'm the guy with the most match-of-the-year contender matches under my belt? Like, is that... 
is that going to be a thing moving forward? And if so, is that a positive change? I think it's definitely something that can happen. Um, it depends on who's running the prom- who's like who's running said promotion. If said promotion sure. just has a complete change of philosophy, because again, it's hard to argue that that's not New Japan already. So, will I see an entire promotion dedicated to it? I think it's very, very, very possible. I think it's hard to say that that's not like PWG at this point either. So, to me, I think it's possible. Well, I do I think it's a good thing? No, I don't think it's a good thing. Even if someone is like pretty lenient with how like wrestling can be written and presented. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think people arguing over like, I have had the most four and a half star matches and you've only had this. is like, I don't think that particularly like leads to me wanting to see a wrestling match or wanting to see the guys wrestle each other. Um, but I do think it's something that is very much possible. I have no problem with guys thinking like, I'm a great wrestler. You're a great wrestler. So let's have a great wrestling match. That's been a story countless times in wrestling. Do sure. I want guys feuding over how good their matches are? Probably not. I think I don't want to introduce Kenny Omega. So is there another name that you've written down that you'd like to get into now? I didn't. Um, I do have one other name that I sort of mentioned before. Though so I'm not sure if his if bringing him up is necessarily going to be all that fruitful of discussion. Um, so I wanted to segue to. Uh, the last of the topics that I had that I wanted to touch on. Um, and that's like this concept of the underground wrestler, um, specifically the velvet underground of wrestling. Um, there's this quote that, uh, I think traces back to Brian Eno, um, who's not even in, in the band himself, a very influential and very, uh, great musician. Um, Brian Eno, like did an interview at one point talking about how he was speaking with Lou Reed, the the lead singer of the velvet underground. Um, and Reed mentioned that like their first album, uh, the velvet underground and Nico only sold like 30,000 copies, but every one of the people who bought those 30,000 copies went out and made a band. They were like that sort of a band. They were that sort of a, a very influential, a formative band for so many people. Um, and I was wondering if you had any opinions on whether or not that sort of figure exists in wrestling. That sort of like unknown, undersung hero that that influences so many other careers, but doesn't get within their own time the sort of recognition they might deserve. When you say that, the first thing that popped into my head was Shima. Um, okay. Okay. The first thing that popped into my head was Shima. Mainly because if you just look at someone, ev- someone who we should note has had a five star Dave Meltzer match, so I question how underground he is. Sure, but one, like maybe probably one of the more, um, I guess like again, a lot of like ROH stuff, DVDs hasn't been like transferred over to VOD. Maybe a little, a little harder to get a hold of. So I'll put, I'll, I think I think that's a fair argument. Yeah, I'll, yeah. So I'll put I'll put that asterisk there. But Shima from his move set to. Guys getting better after being in the Dragon Gate system or being invited over to train and tour with them has influenced and changed wrestling more than a lot, more than a lot of people would know. Whether it be from uh-huh. like a lot of the stuff people took it from him, like the Schwein or the Meteora, or the Meteora being like super commonplace moves in professional wrestling now, where you wouldn't even like bat an eye if you saw someone do a Meteora or whatever. 
but that's like stuff that she has been pulling off for such a long time. Um, guys like Ricochet and Rich Swan and Adrian Neville coming through the Dragon Gate system and more names that I can, that I can count, but guys that started getting better as they started getting embraced in Dragon Gate. Um, Obviously, this goes this dates back to like Michinoku Pro and all that mm-hmm. stuff too. But um, Shima and his infatuation with Lucha Libre and Shima's Lucha Libre influence and that leading to guys like Flamita and Drasty Boy like getting invited over and them touring and them being prominent parts, like them having like an entire stable um, in Mexican flag colors in the Millennials. Um, uh-huh. Like this stuff. Is everything like Shima was doing, and Shima changed a lot more than people would ever think. Even now, with like splitting from Dragon Gate and going to OWE, if you look at his OWE crop of guys that he's trained, these guys are freakish mm. athletes, like scary athletic guys. And this is something that, while it's such a brand new scene, it's such a brand new venture, like being in China full time, it's like. Uh-huh. Who knows what she what she was gonna be able to do over there? Because who knows if like in the next couple of years we might get like a streaming service from OWE. We might get more mm. promotions in China popping up. We already had um Ho Ho Lin's promotion that I know he's I think he still runs, but that didn't like really catch any steam like after Ho Ho Loon like did the Cruiserweight Classic. So who knows? Like if they have a figurehead like Shima at OWE, like who knows? Like maybe like China's wrestling scene could like. Yeah, and we, we saw we saw before like the Dragon Ultimo Dragon leaves in 2004, mm-hmm. right? Is that right? So like he leaves in 2004, and you get like the first crop of the the true Dragonborn system guys, and like you have like Shingo Takagi who like blows people away even to this day, um, including friends of ours recently who have only recently discovered him and were just uh, mystified. Uh, and within two years of that, like you have. Shima bringing his guys over to ROH and them like blowing the roof off the place. Like we could be two years away from like OWE as much as I'm not a fan of them currently, like totally knocking people's socks off yeah. in some, some American promotion. Yeah. Keep in mind, Shima still has all these connections. She, she wanted to take them to Mexico, to Italy, uh-huh. whatever. Like Shima could do all that. And I think for that, like Shima is sort of the velvet underground guy that you were talking about is like, Shima will never, like, get really mentioned on, like, WWE programming. Won't get, like, a like a little, like, mini documentary on New Japan World. But if you watch professional wrestling as deeply and intensely as we do, it's hard to not recognize the importance of Shima. Mm. It's, that's sort of an also a point that I wanted to touch on here in that, like, you mentioned luchadors and, and some of the first people that came to mind when I was debating like who who would be this sort of figure in professional wrestling were uh, a couple of luchadors, guys like Black Terry, guys like Virus, guys who have like, you know, worked for large promotions in Mexico, but that is sort of a relative level of large within the greater wrestling uh, world, especially since uh, Mexico remains fairly isolated, both in style and both in fandom. So like, I... Like, I had to think to myself, like, is, well, uh, uh, along with that, like, I have to imagine, like, there are definitely wrestlers who watch Lucha Libre. Um, Jonathan Gresham's a great example, a guy you you and I both love. Um, but I can't think of 
tons of people who weren't actively working there themselves who have like incorporated lucha libre into their work and so i'm 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 thinking this question like is popularity with certain inner circles of hardcore fans on the internet the same thing as like influential to wrestlers themselves um i think it depends because one thing that came into mind we talk about like how like jonathan gresham one of the only guys you can think of who you got like influenced by Lucha Libre while not actually being in Mexico like that. Um, was Will Ospreay. And Will Ospreay, um, and the whole, ah, oh God, I forgot what the name of that promotion was in England. Um, where he wrestled as Dark Britannico. And it was. Oh, uh, I think it was just like Lucha Libre UK. Yeah, so, there's something like that. And. Something real, it was something real straightforward. Yeah. Um, something like Will Ospreay being like, Influenced by Mexico heavily in his work, or claim to be like 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 influenced like heavily by uh, heavily by Mexico. Like I, Claiming I, is I, the, much better. I, term. I have no clue. <laughs> like, I'd say he's more influenced by AJ Styles than anything, but like I don't know. Um, totally. Or Ricochet. Yeah, but someone like a uh, Will Osprey, like working in uh, English promotion um, with the name Lucha Libre in it. I don't know if Mike Quackenbush worked in Mexico. I don't know the history of that dude, but. Um, would you know if Mike Quackenbush uh, like was well, working in Mexico heavily? Not heavily. He's definitely worked in Mexico for stretches of time. Uh, more so with like Chikara was like the idea of bringing in luchadors mm, okay. to to specifically like train guys and to work with guys. Okay, yeah. Um, now that we mentioned that again, as far as like now, I also like Hashima in my head, and now we're talking about lucha. What about Skyda? Skyda, Skyda, sure. What about Skyda is like the kind of like Velvet Underground, the guys that were in the midwest or training and independent mm-hmm. wrestling to this day still influencing mm-hmm. people in chicago yeah whether it be bigger names like claudio and hero to guys like mustafa ali um coming out of there too Skyda has been definitely one of those guys at the forefront of like kind of like bringing lucha libre to the united states whether it be at a small scale or whatever but sky has been that guy for a really long time now and it's that's sort of I think where this this idea has to come from is like crossover appeal, like people who do manage to thrive in multiple different areas, multiple different regions. But it's like, does that mean that they are popular on some level that the Velvet Underground weren't? Um, it's it's a weird idea, and also like the whole the whole like all thirty thousand of those people went out and made bands. It's not like everyone who's ever watched the Sky to Match went out and wrestled. Mm. You know? Like that's a much harder thing to like to, to compare. Yeah. Um but I think on some level like there's there is this idea that like there are certain wrestlers who, if you saw them at a certain stage of your life, you're now posting on PWO. Yeah. Or even like now, like with our friend like Evan. Evan, like when he's like mm-hmm. kinda like recently gotten away from WWE, we like we mentioned it before, but him getting like him like seeing like Shingo Takagi, and that's not even his favorite guy. His favorite guy is Walter, and sure. Walter's rise of prominence. And I've said before, and I told him is now that you're in this bubble and you joined when you are, Walter's gonna be your guy forever. Whenever like you watch wrestling, whenever you talk, discuss wrestling, like Walter's gonna be your guy. Regardless like how long he wrestles, um, if you ever go to WWE, New Japan, whatever, like Walter is always gonna be your guy. Walter's gonna be one of the first people you think of when you think about like how much you like professional wrestling. And that just like naturally happens when you get like 
introduced to something that way. Um, the last name that I really wanted to bring up for this discussion is the guy that I was talking about as maybe having the biggest stylistic influence of the decade. And that man has now had more crossover success um, in Japan from when he started off, started off as a junior in Noah. Um, 16 karat winner, Bola winner, Super Strong Style 16 winner, uh, New Japan Cup winner, Zack Sabre Jr. And let's, again, we, we, we've tried to like keep like quality and all that stuff like aside when discussing guys. So obviously I'm not going to be discussing how much I have, I think Zack is like a great wrestler or <laughs> wrestler of the year or whatever. So sure. keeping it purely stylistically, I don't think anyone's style or even their perceived style has influenced wrestling as much as Zack Sabre Jr.'s. And really a very, very short and quick span of time. And I think there are other people like a Davey Richards or a Kyle O'Reilly um, that were introducing a lot of the same ideas that Zach was introducing. And a, a Biff Busick or a Drew Gulak or a Timothy Thatcher. Um, even t- I had I had I had Gulak penciled in on this list as like sort of the father of grapple fuck. Mm-hmm. So even like a Drew Gulak or even to a lesser extent like Kushida as we get like f- further into the sure. decade. Like these guys who were wrestling this style. But I think Zach, for like everything that he is, sort of became the model of it. Um, sometimes falsely for other reasons, uh, like the when he first rises to prominence in 2015 in the United States. Well, not 2014 is when he debuts in Bola. 2015 is when he gets his PWG title shot. He's making more appearances in Evolve. Um, wins Bola that year. And a lot of the talk about talk around Zach is this sort of. Johnny Santa's tribute tribute act. And a lot of that is valid that year, but that's also clearly Zach changing his style to like to kind of like fit what got him over in the in um in the United States. Because if you go back and watch earlier Zach work, you see him in 2012 being this heelish jerk. And I think a lot of that gets lost because of when Zach started getting popular and what he was doing when he got popular. But with other being said, we start to see this, uh, a lot of the moves Zach does get ate by people, um, taking someone's arm, putting it between their feet, and doing a snapping motion or something that would like simulate a snapping of a joint or whatever. Um, him putting his ankles around someone's arm, leg, neck, and twisting a lot of the arm bar variations he would bust, bust out. Um, Finger breakers. Yeah, finger finger breaking spots, joint manipulation, PKs. All that stuff is Zack Sabre Jr. And stuff Zack Sabre Jr. has been doing for a very, very, very long time. Almost like to the point where we have documented proof of this going back to like 2008. That this has Uh been this guy's style. So, as far as like stylistic influences, what do you think about Zack Sabre Jr. kind of being the guy that's bit had the biggest impact to the point where we're talking about like WWE commentators are putting over joint manipulation during Oscar <laughs> matches. Like <laughs> it's an interesting thing because I think he's not, he's not the impetus behind that. I think he happened to come around um, as there was just an increased, 
I don't even know if it was, like an appeal is really what I'm going for, but like as as more technically based wrestling worked its way into um, the mainstream, or more specifically, like the mainstream level of independent. Yeah, like, like, we, like we could trip, like trace it to like like Biff and like Drew Gulak, like like, like wrestling each other for the CZW title and being uh-huh. beyond all that stuff. So like this stuff sort of come aside because Zach in 2014 makes his Bola debut. Biff um, and, and, and like makes his debut on like an international scene, despite the fact that's definitely not his first time in America. Mm-hmm. Like he, he had previously been there in CCW, um, but it's but it's like he makes a name for himself there, and it's that's the important bit. I think that like Zach showed up, showed up big, showed up on the biggest stage possible in the independent scene, and that brought us like, yes, yeah, totally brought like a certain level of grace and charm to something that uh that timothy thatcher never got overdoing that drew gulak never got overdoing the biff music never got overdoing and it would take them longer to be able to do uh in no small part due to the fact that zach was there alongside them sort of towing the line as just like a charming cheeky british guy i think he's very influential in like a global rise in technical wrestling maybe not on like a a hold for hold level but like he has made it so much more accessible for so many people Mm. um and in the same way i think he's also like very important structurally in that he is along with will osprey the face of like the rise of european wrestling Mm -hmm. obviously you gotta throw guys in there like marty scurro as far as like sort of like him eventually like joining bullet club and all that stuff and even um even though he's Uh irish um prince devitt and what everything he was able to do in Japan, but like, yeah, these guys, um, especially without, especially Zach in his case, only doing the Cruiserweight Classic, but in the cases of Zach, Osprey, and Marty, like, without doing this, doing this without WWE and seeing how the popular those guys are, and then WWE is like almost like direct response into making their own big three with Pete Dunn, Market, um, Pete Dunn, um, Tyler Bay, and Trent Seven, and. <laughs> Marvelous technical wrestler Trent Seven, <laughs> like, like, so like almost like making like their sort of like response to like these like three hugely popular British yeah. dudes that aren't signed to them, and totally. I think a lot of Zach's case is, uh, it's weird to put it this way, but like, I think a lot of Zach's case is like what is perceived of him to be, because uh-huh. I think Zach is more than the guy that's like brought technical wrestling to the forefront because Zach's style is more than that. Zach's style blends more than just world sport and everything else. Zach's style blends like jet, like classic Japanese wrestling. Zach's style like blends like current U S indie wrestling. Zach's style blends in elements of Yave from like Lucha and all that stuff. So I, and he, and he does it with like, he is so much more of a fleshed out character than the majority of people who fit that bill. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why I sort of like kind of like give Zach a different perspective is because when Zach first comes in, all I see is, uh, he's just doing World of Sport tribute act. Uh huh. And even back then, I didn't think that was true because he's doing, he's like, he's having these badges with Roderick Strong where they're beating the absolute shit out of each other. So, even then, that's not true. But still, like, looking at, like, everything Zach did, like, stylistically and what he brings to the table, Zach has always been more than that. 
But it goes back to like marketing and campaigning and making like giving yourself an image and a brand and the technical calling yourself the technical wizard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. calling yourself the technical wizard became a brand. And Beth Busick wasn't doing that. Timothy Thatcher wasn't doing that. Like, <laughs> totally. Drew, Drew Drew Gulak wasn't doing that. And granted, like they're hor- horrible at branding. <laughs> One of them doesn't even have a Twitter. <laughs> Timothy, Thatcher, Timothy Thatcher was the British Messiah. Like maybe like the worst branding <sighs> ever. <laughs> But, like, I think there was, like, also, like, an authenticity with Zach doing it. That, like, all the guys, like, a lot of other guys, like, maybe, like, didn't have when they started doing it. Because Zach is, like, from England where they're getting so much of this influence from. Um, and has that experience in Japan. Mm-hmm. So there's an authenticity there when Zach does it that I'm not sure those guys had. But I think really what came, what it came, what it came, what it came down to for Zach was people buying in to the marketing and branding of the technical wizard. And I think he embodies, or he started to embody what people called technical wrestling or mat wrestling. Um, to a lot of people, Zach is, um, like the technical wrestling equivalent of high spots. Um, and I think there's like some like validation there, but I also see Zach doing like amateur wrestling and legitimate BJJ transitions and holds that nobody else really does. So, mm-hmm. I think Zach is like both sides of the coin there as where I've seen Zach do more wacky quote unquote technical wrestling than, mo- than a lot of guys, but I've also seen him do more realistic and mm. legitimate technical wrestling than a lot of guys. And I think that's the case of Zach just in general as a wrestler and his style is that he always seems to just straddle the line without ever going over to one more than the other. I, I really like this marketing idea, especially as it relates to technical wrestling, because I think about something like um, the Tetsujin tournament that we've both enjoyed for the past several years, um, which is in itself an enjoyable little thing, uh, despite the fact that like building yourself up with like a Japanese name and calling yourself shoot style like is sort of disingenuous, but that branding and the branding of the characters within them. Like, Chris Ridgway is a great example of a guy who, like, I don't think is super skilled, but has branded himself very well and is very endearing in that character that he embodies. Um, that carries you a long way in such a minimal style, in such a style that is, like, based on, uh, based on a technical skill that not a lot of people are able to appreciate on a micro level, but understand how, uh, how effective, like, emotionally it can be on a macro level. Like, they can see a big submission and be like, holy shit, that's crazy. And that is only aided by the fact that the person doing it is someone who you think is super cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and going back to more the idea of, like, branding and marketing, I touched on it a little bit with New Japan um, and the great match thing and being known as the great match place. But something that I feel like it almost has to be like talked about when it comes to like marketing and branding and influence and importance when it comes to this current decade is the buzzword and term strong style. And really like this became like the term to throw out for anything that wasn't WWE for a long time. Um, 
Even to the point where eventually I'm hearing people on WWE commentary say the term fighting spirit. And it became a thing that became like so commonplace and overused that it just made it, it just made its way into like the WWE circle. But now the term as we use it, strong style, I don't want to get into the whole like lineage of it and all that since like sure. it's not really a thing, but the sort of idea of strong style of like hitting someone as hard as you can and looking everything looking violent and stiff and landing like in awkward positions that look very uncomfortable <laughs> or and rooted in like a, an amateur background and mm-hmm. things like that mm-hmm. or um guys hitting each other with moves and getting right back up and hitting someone with other other move or kicking out of one like whatever like people call strong style now has become like what we see everywhere and this goes back to your homogenization point of wrestling is like uh uh-huh. i'm seeing like one count spots in low level indies i'm seeing it in pwg i'm seeing it in um uh nxt as early as 2014 between cesaro and Sami Zayn, and um in their matches seeing sammy get like do it have a one have a one count kick out um it's a thing that obviously WWE took notice of in fact capitalizing on it themselves or having elements of it. But what did you think of like the for growing use and misuse of the term strong style going back to progress and them calling themselves like strong style wrestling? And there's like an entire episode we can do on progress and their branding and everything that for like, uh, for like for better or for worse, they've done a great job branding themselves. But yes. it's like annoying as hell. Very effective. Um, I, I think this whole sort of idea is really indicative of a shift in maybe not even a shift, but just a. Uh, what this comes down to is I think fans wanting something different or wanting to appear knowledgeable about something different, but not necessarily knowing as much as they should uh in order to be able to use these terms um that sort of sounds elitist and i and i sort of mean it to be elitist um but really what i mean by that is like there's a there's a there's a fundamental a fundamental divide in wrestling fandom between fans who want to watch everything there has ever been in the history of wrestling and want to like dissect it and be very knowledgeable about uh mid-south about uh old school portland about uh jwa um and and talk about those things at length and a uh sort of fan that is only really interested in the here and now in current wrestling in um the very most popular wrestling uh, in the most appealing wrestling, whatever that means for them individually. Um, and there's like a huge divide between those, those different fan bases. And those two fan bases have existed forever, I would say. They've probably grown farther apart in recent memory than they had been 20, 30 years ago. But, uh, by and large, I think those two different sorts of people have always been watching wrestling. But uh, with the advent of the internet and with, uh, everyone sort of, um, 
consolidating down to like Twitter and Facebook, you see clashes between this sort of nomenclature where one person will use a term one way and another person will be like, oh, hey, that's not reflective of my understanding. And that can be very heated because it's something that one person might care about um, as it's understood in one scenario. And that is like completely the opposite and almost offensive to another sort of fan who has a different understanding of that term. Um, and like, that's, that's sort of just like, that belies, not, not even belies, but like, that's, that's the symptom of, I think people just being more, um, you mentioned it earlier, like people drawing lines in the sand more than they used to, I think in wrestling and like that sort of idea has also always existed of like oh i only watch this wrestling oh you're stupid for watching this other promotion um but more and more as people are able to interact with each other and interact with people they never would have interacted with before uh as that becomes more and more commonplace and ubiquitous um and just constant like we're gonna see that happening and we're gonna see that flaring up into 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 like big fights on the internet as much as that means it amounts to anything and it's i i I worry that it's only going to drive people farther apart who fundamentally do enjoy a lot of the same thing so sort of like wrap up this discussion and kind of get back to a lot of what i wanted to say before this discussion is something that we had had like internally like a while a few times i get posted on twitter before and I mentioned at the top is like, like me dealing with like certain things as far as like me having a hospital trip and not being able to sleep for 40 hours. Um, mm-hmm. coming back home from said hospital and having like fits of not being able to sleep because I'm afraid I'm going to die in my sleep and jarring myself awake because I'm afraid to go to sleep. Uh, feeling that same anxiety as I'm riding in cars or just awake and trying to get throughout my day trying to go to work and the only time I ever feel like the anxiety goes away is when I'm working and when I have to put it away and when I have to hide it Mm -hmm. and this is distancing myself from being on Twitter not being in the group chat we have as much um, not doing psychology is dead and it was like a really tough last few weeks for me. Uh, not even mentioning how, um, I broke up with my girlfriend. I had congestion in my nose for like weeks and weeks and weeks. And I've never had allergies before in my life. The only thing I've ever been allergic to is a family friend's cat. And that was back when I was like eight or nine years old. And it hasn't popped up since then. And turns out I was just having allergies. But when you've never had that sensation before, last as long mm-hmm. as you have, and you're trying to go to sleep, and you're already anxious and afraid to sleep, and now you're afraid you can't breathe in your sleep, and now you're even more afraid that you're going to die in your sleep, like, things like that keep piling up. And I had my mind telling me things that had reasonable explanations were signs of me dying. You know what I mean? And mm. that's what your mind will do to you when... You let your mind, like, go wild. And truthfully, it was with things that I kept thinking. So, like, my brain, like, made it into an existence. Like, I convinced myself I had sleep apnea. 
And after doing so, I then start waking up short of breath. When I stop thinking about I have me having sleep apnea, I then stop waking up being short of breath. Like, it's a lot of like my brain, like making things exist that didn't exist before. And I say all this to say, with me having dealing with like everything I've dealt with, so having everything I've dealt with, and this isn't like some sob story, like this isn't nearly as sad as like some things could be. If I talked about like a lot of the stuff that has generally happened to me in my life could be. I'm just saying as far as like getting back to like wrestling fandom and even this topic in particular is where do you get back into wrestling when you are the way we are when you have something go on? I know that you've had your own experiences falling out of wrestling and all that stuff and I'm not saying I've had a fall out of wrestling or I had a fall out of wrestling. I had other stuff take priority. I've taken breaks before. Um, I took one at the end of last year, I believe. Like, this isn't new for me to kind of, like, distance myself for a few weeks. Mm-hmm. But when you are the way we are and we watch every single thing, we talk about every single thing, we have big overwrought discussions in the middle of the night about wrestling topics, we get, like mad at each other and discuss things and get like super heated about it like when you are the way like we are the way the people like listen to the show are the way that people in our group chat are the way the people that i follow are like when you have that time where you have to like reflect on yourself and it sounds way more dramatic than it is but when you love wrestling the way that we do how do you get back into wrestling full swing I question whether full swing is a thing, um, because like what is like what is, what is that hundred percent? What is what is firing on all cylinders in this context? Like, is it as much as like you were watching wrestling when you were twelve, when you had like zero responsibilities and 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 had the internet in front of you, can just do whatever? Is it like what you were watching uh, a couple of years ago when we had a website we were writing for? What like like where do you draw that line? Um, so like, that's like the first thing that comes to my mind, but like greater than that is like, I don't know. It's, it's really hard. Like I've had, uh, I'm currently in like a break from wrestling where I've watched like one show in three weeks, I think. Um, and it's hard for me to like, will myself back into watching like 2006 Chikara for my blog that I'm reviewing, even though that's a promotion I love and I'm, and I'm paused on a match that I know is super good and that I'm going to enjoy. Like, it's just, it's difficult to get back into that partially because like, um, we just pour a lot into that. Like I, it, it takes a lot out of me to like review things for my blog. Like that just, it, it slows me down. Um, it makes me think of things more critically. It, it's, it's actual tangible work on some level. And even, even like you don't write reviews, but you do like star reviews and like deliberating that and thinking about that, like does take a lot out of you as does like just chatting with the rest of us in Slack or, you know, sending out tweets or doing these doing these podcasts like we put a lot into discussing and uh like trying to wring the most we can out of wrestling uh for whatever fucked up reasons we have for doing that um and 
I think that's the thing is like this is just a very this is a very difficult pastime. This is a very emotional pastime. Like it's something that does directly play on your emotions and your understanding of the world and what is and what should be and what ought to be. Um, and it's also something that like on a fan level, like it can be very toxic and very, as I was mentioning, like divisive and inflammatory and something as simple as like getting on Twitter and seeing just shit blow up over nothing. And you're like, like, I don't need this. None of us need this, but it's, it's, it's what's become of wrestling and it's what we have chosen to put up with in wrestling for as long as we will remain fans. Um, and I don't know. That's like, it's like things get better. I, I believe that on a fundamental level that like there is forward momentum on some, like even just subatomic, uh, framework, but like it's hard. And I don't know. I don't know how other than sometimes just like putting it aside for a couple days and easing yourself back in by talking to friends for a couple hours or something. I don't know how to like get back in that groove. Yeah. It's a thing that again, like I've taken like my breaks before and I was able to come back. Like I remember last year I wasn't watching any wrestling for a while and I can't, I had came back to watch the WXW tag league. Uh Um, and then after that, like by November, December, like I'm getting ready to like gear up for year end stuff and doing the top 50 and the top 120. But I think kind of like feeling myself fall back into mindsets that I haven't experienced since I was like 18 was the scary part. And when you love like wrestling, like so much for whatever reason that we do, it's like, trying to force yourself to do it doesn't feel right because hmm. even if even if like that's what you want yeah like you and i want to watch everything you and i want to comment on everything you, you and i want to be knowledgeable and to, to be to be uh resources for other people and to to be able to have these conversations that go on for hours into the night you know but it like it takes it takes so much it takes so much willpower and it takes so much work. Yeah, and, like, it's, like, when you kind of, like, have, like, thrusted yourself, like, whatever dumb responsibility that I've given myself, as opposed mm-hmm. to, like, if anyone is wind up, like, listening to these shows, and it's, like, our guide wherever, and someone's listening to this, like, I still feel like I have some responsibility because I've put this out there into the public. And uh-huh. if I somehow inform from an opinion, inform someone's opinion, someone's opinion, shape someone's opinion, despite how much I don't want to do that, then, like, that's my responsibility. And I, whenever I do this, I put a lot into it. Usually put in, put a lot into it. Um, like dumb backstage note. Like I told Brock that I wanted to do this two days, two days ago. Um, <laughs> usually we kind of like set something up like in like maybe a month, a few weeks, but this is like very spontaneous and was spontaneous for the reason being that if I just told myself, all right, you have to do the show now, maybe I'll understand, like, all right, you're good to go again. Like, you're fine. You figured everything out. Mm, excuse me. You figured everything out. You've been able to help yourself. It's time to get back into doing the things you enjoy doing. And I do enjoy doing this show. I do enjoy talking to everybody. I, 
<laughs> Maybe not as much as everything else, but I do enjoy being on Twitter, even though I really, yeah. really don't like so many people. But I do enjoy doing this. I do enjoy being involved in this. And I'm glad that I have like whatever like minuscule role that I have in this wrestling bubble that we're a part of. But I think when you care so much, you don't want to fuck it up. You don't want to put out something that isn't a reflection of how you really feel at your best or how you really feel like when you're in um, complete control of things. And I think maybe it was time for me to stop being like that. And time to stop like waiting for me to be in complete control in order to say things and me to be quote unquote like happy to say things because that's not honest and I think well I like to think that this show is like kind of like driven on honesty and being honest with your emotions and being honest in discussions and like I force you to open up all the time so to me force me (laughs) (laughs) so to me it wasn't fair that I was like taking like such a long break and letting these things like get to me the way they were to prevent me from doing the show when you've sacrificed so much in order to do the show. So I did this, yeah, I'm doing this and saying all this to open like in in closing to say the psychology is that it is pretty much back. I'm fine. I'm definitely figured myself out more than I thought I would. Uh <laughs> I was supposed to go to a doctor, um, or a psychiatrist rather, um, and this was back in May. And they told me that the earliest appointment I could get is like June 12th if I wanted to go see a psychiatrist and get some anxiety medication. And I knew that at the rate I was going, I couldn't do that. So I took everything in my own hands and had to figure myself out and talk to myself and reflect and find things to like help bide my time and all that because I knew that a month for someone that has some sort of mental illness like firing at them at all times of the day that can easily chip away at you and I knew that 30 more days of that just wasn't going to be able to cut it so if I just even cut it down to like 15 more days or 20 more days like I knew that I was like at least helping myself like fix the problem before it could have gone any further and I'm glad to say that I did fix it and that I'm back to feeling normal and healthy again but it was that scary part of like knowing like not knowing like where I would be in the next month that sort of like forced my hand into I need to like get better and get back to like being myself again and obviously this part isn't like super wrestling related but wrestling is related to me getting back into being myself because at my core i'm this big music and wrestling nerd and in order to be myself i gotta go back to like listening to music and talking about music and listening to and talking about wrestling and i've watched the champions carnival i've watched the best of super juniors i'm back into being myself and I think that right now I'm in a better place than I was back in March even when we did like the 16 karat podcast stuff and 
I just wanted to say that to say all of the shows are going to be back on a normal schedule pretty much. So I apologize if I was gone maybe longer than I, than usual, but the shows are back to normal. I'm busy. Yeah. I work two jobs, but I'm back to normal and everything about the show going forward will be going back to normal. So that's all I had to say there. We actually clocked in at less than three hours. So we got, we, we're, we're getting there though. <laughs> I, I wasn't sure if this was going to go as long as it has. No. Um, I think that for a short notice episode and one that totally, I just wanted to like have that little time, like talk about at the end. Um, we went shorter, not short show, but shorter. Maybe, we're, maybe <laughs> we're getting better at this. I don't know. We'll see when we talk about the young bucks or dumb stars or some dumb shit. Um, but I want to thank you for being on the show. Um, especially after I pretty much gave you like no notice on it and made you like prepare for it like way shorter than we usually prepare for shows. But I, well, I mean, this was sort of an easy one in that regard. Yeah, but I appreciate you, uh, taking the time to come out and do the show again. And hopefully we'll be able to like figure something out in the future. I know that you have the Kenny Omega article that you promised 18 months ago to do. <laughs> <Shut the fuck. laughs> yeah. Sure. Um, well, I mean, thanks for, thanks for, thanks for still being here. Uh, and, and thanks for, um, continuing to do this with me. And yeah, I do have an article that I did promise you a year and a half ago that is going to come out soonish. Um, some of that is, is due to, uh, a particular event coming up with Dominion that I have to wait for to see how that shakes out to really like, get my feelings involved um some of it's like i have to wait on some technology coming through uh specifically trying to get some old photos and videos uh that's gonna be a big thing um and you can find this portentous article over on my blog which is brock hates wrestling at wordpress.com you can find just about everything else i do on twitter at not brock yankee that's spelled n-o-t-b-r-o-c-k-j-a-h-n-k-e um, are you watching Dominion live? Uh, yeah, I kind of have to. <laughs> like, I kind of had to last year. Well, you did. Oh, yeah, you did watch it live. You did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh huh. Are you like how much are you dreading seeing this match possibly go like eighty minutes or something? It's. Uh, I talked about this recently on PWO. I kind of don't mind a super long match as long as like I can. Like, if you locked me in a room and bound my hands and made me watch a, a long match, I'd kill myself. I would, like, ram my head against the wall. Like, I couldn't handle it. But, like, being in a in a chat room with, like, you and the rest of our friends and, like, scrolling through Twitter, it'll be fine. Right. I might loathe it. It might hurt on a physical level, but I'll be fine. <laughs> All right, so over under on it going 80 minutes. No, I think it goes short. Okay, I, I'm 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 in this camp of like it goes like 25. Yeah, I, I, I was in the camp of saying it goes under 60, it might undergo might go under 50. Yeah, it'll be short. All right. So I just want to see where you're at there. Um, definitely looking forward to watching that. I haven't watched the Best of Super Junior Final yet, so I got to finish my catch up there. But no, mm. <laughs> you're like probably like months away from ever, ever watching anything from Best of Super Junior. <laughs> it'll be it'll be a while. Sure. <laughs> but uh. Thanks again to anybody that listened to um, the important part of the show and not the part where I rambled on about stuff. But 
Thank you all for listening. Anyway, I'm Quentin Moody. Hope you're here next time. This is just how I zone with borders fast. I was born at a quarter past. I was the color purple. Mom and pop took me home in a crown royal bag. Now I'm the hottest nigga that you know with the coldest intentions. Uh, all I know is this flow and this pencil. The Lord is my shepherd, the devil's my doberman pension. The industry said I had to be an alcoholic who be having threesomes, be doing acid and having seizures. Wish I can go back to my old school and slap the teachers. All I had to do to blow up was an album pack with features. I don't relate to common folk, they focus on the common So I'ma go roll a Tessarosa down a coast of Monaco Lo and behold your honor roll, niggas is sheep, niggas is sleep By the woke is a dinosaur, my connector give you a whole kilo of coke So he can go, Geronimo, he should receive a trophy for being the holy Jesus of flows, he the goat, bad, that should be my tag I'm from the streets where the eyes are not even Robbery, thieving, ballers, debauchery, scheming A lie, Jesus, is hard to believe I'm a product of even the Garden of Eden Speaking how targeted we been Rihanna Stalker, I'm parked in the DMs Shark in the deep end Put the paws on you, I soften your defense Hit your pause button, heart you critiquing Talk is cheap, the more you niggas talk it, it cheapens And all I see is prep, round the streets today I'm about to freak away from having Issa Rae Eating out Lisa Rae Any artist out that you see is great Tell him I said bring his ass, better bring his A Let it single play, we don't care what you sing Hit you in the face with the butt of the gun You leaking, get your street credit a few streams Pop go to weasel nigga, fever Nina, I'm the illest You got pop culture fever nigga, all I know is big and pop quotes Pop toast and squeezing triggers, speeding tickets Now I pull the caps over, get them niggas season tickets Gigi used to shoot me down vicious, now she the missus She turned me to a family guy quicker than Peter Griffin I told myself when I was 14 that she the one now a nigga probably got more seeds than Peter Guns Now I go out to get my groceries and two-seaters Used to roll the old school phone speakers and two tweeters Riding with nothing but raw quarter packs and duffels Ryan Rice heaters Y'all niggas is cut like one of them get rich or die trying white beaters me, I'm just all show the straps and muscle If you're a hater, let's do it I'll whip you now and then whip on your boy later Them whippings will go around like a tornado I get rid of more Yale I don't do Rodale or Ailes I do the Floyd Mayos So many men shopping in women's section It ain't no ladies left These niggas crazy, yes They playing crazy like the Chappelle sketch Wayne Brady F I'm what you get when Freeway Rick and Cocaine 80s met Bringing bars back to the street like Jay and Nasby Broadcasting Ether and HD at Godspeed